Hello, and welcome to episode 73 of the Movie Marathoners podcast, part of the Evergreen Podcast Network. I'm your host, Mati, and joining me today is my girlfriend, Dana. Welcome back to the podcast, Dana. How's your weekend been? My weekend has been good. You know, a classic quarantine weekend. Done some some Zooming, some movies, some running. So, all in all, you know, your average weekend. Same weekend that we've had yeah. for the last nine months. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, this week, we've got a packed episode, so thank you for being here. Tenant is coming to VOD this week, which means we finally get to watch that film with subtitles. So maybe we'll hear all the dialogue this time. Who knows? Tenant is directed by Christopher Nolan, who has been, of course, in the news quite a bit lately for his demands that Warner Bros. release Tenant in theaters in the midst of a pandemic. And then again, for his follow-up comments calling out Warner Brothers for releasing its 2021 slate to theaters and HBO Max simultaneously, also after Tenet bombed at the box office. This guy has an ego, and he's not afraid to voice his opinion. But in his defense, that ego is built on a filmography that has more or less defined blockbuster filmmaking for over the last 20 years. So what we have planned for this week is a comprehensive ranking of all 11 of Christopher Nolan's films. We'll be running through each film in chronological order, so that's starting with his very unseen first film following, and ending with Tenet. We'll rank each of these as we go, culminating in a final ranking at the end of the episode. And also prior to recording, Dana and I tried to guess each other's top three films, so we'll see how all that pans out at the end of the episode as well. Now, in order to properly talk about each of these films and how well they work, we have to talk spoilers. Christopher Nolan films have a ton of spoilers, and it's hard to tiptoe around all of them. However, we will be making two exceptions. Because very few people have seen Following, we will not be spoiling things about that film. And because very few people were able to see Tenant, we actually had to drive almost an hour to a drive-in in Rhode Island to actually see it, we won't be spoiling Tenet either. So with the exception of Following and Tenet, this is your one and only spoiler warning for all of Christopher Nolan's films. And as always, I will provide timestamps in the show notes if you want to hop around to avoid spoilers for a given film. And then as a final note, we will be skipping the point two section to give us more time to talk about each of these films. So in order, Christopher Nolan's films are Following, Memento, Insomnia, Batman Begins, The Prestige, The Dark Knight, Inception, The Dark Knight Rises, Interstellar, Dunkirk, and Tenet. But before we start, let's briefly talk about Christopher Nolan in general. Dana, as a woman, and specifically as a living woman instead of one who dies to motivate a male protagonist, what is your relationship with Christopher Nolan films? Well, as a woman, it is one's greatest aspiration to tragically die in such a way that motivates a man (laughs) with a strong jawline to dedicate his life to avenging her. So it's nice to be represented, you know, on screen in that way. Um, All jokes aside, though, I mean, I do love Nolan movies. I I really do. I'm I'm kind of a, a sucker for anything branded as a psychological thriller or anything with a a third act twist that makes you want to start the movie over right away to see what you missed. And those movies are kind of Nolan's sweet spot. Yeah, I think Nolan does a lot of things very well and then does a few things pretty poorly. And I think depending on how important those things that he does poorly are to you as a viewer, that will determine your enjoyment of his films. And, you know, I just came off of an episode on David Fincher, and I do certainly have a more ambivalent feeling about a lot of Nolan's films than I do someone like David Fincher. And I think in a lot of ways, they're similar in the kind of area of Hollywood that they're working in. They're kind of this prestige, but also blockbustery type filmmaking. 
Uh, but like Fincher's films, I don't think that Nolan has made a bad movie. So when we get to the bottom of my rankings, it's not so much that these films are awful, so much as they just aren't as good as some of his other films. And there are quite a few of them that I really, really love. Yeah, I would definitely agree with that. I think that as I was doing my ranking, it was hard because I felt bad putting things at yeah. the bottom because I was like on any other list, you know, this probably wouldn't be anywhere close to the bottom. But, you know, we were just picking from a really good crop of movies. And I do agree also that even the things that kind of go wrong, it's like, for me, part of what I enjoy about about watching a movie is is the conversations that you can have after. And sometimes it is really like enjoyable for me to have conversations about things that don't work mm -hmm. um, just as a sort of lens to, you know, compare sort of your experience of the world to what that movie is saying about the world. So in that way, I don't think that Nolan films are perfect, but the way that they have problems is not prohibitive of me enjoying the movie. Well, let's not waste any time and get to some of those discussions. Um, let's go ahead and start with Following, Nolan's first film from 1998. Your eyes um, drift across a crowd of people and they slowly stop and fix on one person and all of a sudden that person isn't part of the crowd anymore. They become an individual, just like that. Just became irresistible. So you followed women? Yeah, I followed anybody. I just wanted to see where they went, what they did. It was supposed to just be completely random. You would never follow the same person twice. That was the most important one. That was the one that I broke first. That's when the trouble started. Dana, of Nolan's 11 films, where does Following land for you? And what are your thoughts? So for me, this movie, which I had never heard of until we set out on this little endeavor, <laughs> um, came in at number seven for me out of 11. And this is an economical movie, both with re regard to time and ostensibly the budget. It's interesting because ultimately a giant budget will become sort of a hallmark of a Nolan movie. So this clearly low budget project is a very stripped down version of what serves as a kind of manifesto as the types of movies that he wants to make. But it's mostly people walking down streets and talking in apartments, but it still packs in those Nolan mainstays of nonlinear storytelling and some topsy-turvy twists and, you know, some questions about truth and identity. So the runtime is like 70 minutes. So yeah. <laughs> as you're watching, you're almost asking yourself, like, what could, where could he have even hidden missing pieces in here? But you know that you're missing something. And then ultimately, I think by the end, it makes for a really satisfying watch. Um, and it's just a really fun way to spend a little, little over an hour. So I think for a lot of people who haven't seen this, I do think that it's worth the watch because I just think that it's a neat little movie. Yeah, it's a slightly longer episode of television, yeah. but you get a whole contained story. Yeah. Do you have any guesses for what the budget of this film is? Um, I mean, probably nothing because, I mean, th there's no one even in it that I like. I would say less than $10,000. Yeah, that's a good guess. It's $6,000, wow. which is nothing yeah. for a movie. When, like, theoretically, we year could was make it? a $6,000 movie. What year was it? Uh, 1999. So, okay, whatever, inflation a yeah. little bit. But like even small indie films, like the ones that people characteristically call indie films, usually have like a million dollar budget or mm -hmm. something like that. Like a million dollars doesn't go that far anymore. Mm -hmm. So $6,000 is insane. Um I agree with everything you said, and ironically, or I suppose maybe ironic's not the right word, but my ranking for this is also seven oh, out of no. eleven. Yeah, 
So, um, I mean, I feel like because it was such an indie independent thing, it was so short, it's a black and white film. I just kind of assumed that I would dismiss this. I think this is the second to last of the all the films that we watched. Mm-hmm. And not that I was dreading it, but I was sort of not really looking forward to it. And I really enjoyed it. I thought everything you're saying is really good. It, it's very good for especially how cheap it is. Um, the story's compelling. The characters are compelling. Um, I think Nolan does a good job at building a mini world out of this minor petty burglary and theft thing that's going mm-hmm. on in the movie. Like, there's rules, there's um, people, there's names for things. It's all, as you're saying, very Christopher Nolan-y, even down to the nonlinear storytelling and even down to the protagonist that looks like Christopher Nolan. <laughs> yeah, no, that's a good point. I hadn't even noticed the resemblance, but now that you say it, he does <laughs> He does look like him. And I mean, I am, and I know you are too, to an extent, just a sucker for a short movie because if something is less than 90 minutes, it's like, I might as well watch this. Like, yeah. you know, we did have to pay like $3 to watch it, but- Four whatever okay well it's my four dollars i think or no i don't know who bought that one but oh well the other thing that i think is funny about this is that there's a lot of references to other christopher nolan movies or i should say other christopher nolan movies reference this movie um you pointed this out that the main character in this or i suppose the second main character of this his name is cobb Mm -hmm. who is the name of um, Leonardo DiCaprio's character in Inception. Mm-hmm. There's also a character that is unnamed. She is in the credits called The Blonde, who is a character in Inception that Tom Hardy plays. Um, and then there's also a Batman on the door of the main character's apartment. I don't know if you picked up on oh, that. Oh, I actually, I think I, I do have that information in my brain, but I didn't like think anything of it. Yeah, yeah I didn't either until I read it somewhere that I was like, oh yeah, that is that yeah. is the movies that he makes, isn't it? Yeah. Um, no dead wife, though. So I guess his issues with his wife have not manifested into dead wife no, territory No, maybe he wasn't yet. married yet when he made this. Yeah, who knows? Uh, but overall, filming, it was a very pleasant surprise. I'd really recommend people seeking it out. We're not going to spoil it or talk about the twist, but there is a, a nice little twist that borders on over-the-top ridiculous, like all of Nolan's twists. I think this also feels a little bit like Memento on training wheels. Like everybody kind of talks about Memento as the small Christopher Nolan film, but this one is even smaller. Yeah. And it does even more oh, simple yeah. things is, than Memento. This is a tiny Memento compared to this is definitely a bigger yeah. a bigger project. Yeah. So number seven for me, number seven for Dana. But speaking of Memento, let's move on to Nolan's next film, Memento from 2000. I'll go ahead and start this off by giving my thoughts. This is my number one Nolan film. Did you guess that? I did guess that. Yeah. I am not shy about how much I love this film. I don't want to risk being hyperbolic, but I'm going to say it anyways. I think that the screenplay for this film is one of the best screenplays of all time, specifically the way that the screenplay is structured. I know that there's dialogue in screenplays as well. That's not particularly amazing in this film. I don't think actually dialogue in general is one of Christopher Nolan's strong suits, but it's serviceable in this movie. And what I mean by the amazing part of the screenplay is the structure and the way that the narrative is told, the way that it starts at the beginning and the end of the story and then meets in the end. And the fact that, at least in my opinion, the ending of the film is satisfying and coherent. I think that is a small miracle that they were able to make a screenplay where all of that makes sense. And Mm -hmm. again, not to sound hyperbolic, it's a bit of a work of brilliance. I think this is a thing that you can only do once. Once somebody does it 
and somebody does it this well, there is literally no point in doing it again, which is why I don't understand why there are even talks about remaking Memento. Um, I'm not usually one of those people that's like, don't remake movies, blah, blah, blah. But I don't really see a point to remaking this. I think this movie is practically flawless from a screenplay uh, standpoint. Yeah, I didn't know that there were conversations about remaking it. I don't really see how or why that could or would be done effectively. Yeah, I, I, this is number two for me. So so, okay. so pretty close. I did not have that as your number two. Hmm. So it's not in your top three for me. Interesting. Um, so you think I have poor taste? Um, no, that's not what I'm saying. Yeah, I mean, this is one of those movies that the form transcends its plot so much that when we were watching it, which was just my second time and the first was years ago, and you were asking me like how much I remember of what happens. And it's hard because I feel like this movie is so much less about what happens than how it happens. Mm-hmm. So I was like, I, I kind of know what's going to happen and I know how the movie's going to unfold, but I don't really know like what the people did to each other and, you know, who killed who. But I think it's one of those movies that you watch for the first time and you go like, just, you know, you didn't, I didn't know that like movies could do that or yeah. that a movie could be that. And like you were saying, just the structure is just it just amazingly put together just the composition and the narrative unfolds in fragments in that reverse chronological order. And we as the audience sort of experience Leonard's inability to make memories because we have no memory of his past either. And normally, at least when you're watching a movie, you have, you know, the time that you've been with the character, but you're sort of going through this entire movie with a sense of disorientation. And like you said, that could be super confusing, but it's actually not. And I think that it's done in a way that's quite easy to follow, which is really nice because I do think that, you know, some kind of psych thrillery movies, you are just like, I, I don't understand what's going on until mm-hmm. maybe the end you're like, oh, but this, I feel like you do watch it and you do understand how it's unfolding. So it's not inaccessible. And it really sets the precedent of the extent to which I think that Nolan likes to impose his character's subjectivity onto the audience because you watch pretty much the entire movie with your one conception of Leonard, you know, with his mission being to avenge his wife. Mm -hmm. Um, And I think that it's a really cool twist that what you've been led to believe is incorrect with regard to his motivations rather than, you know something that happened to him or something that he misremembered. It was intentional that he set himself up to deceive himself about his motivations. And I think that this is a theme that Nolan is really interested in is like the lies that we tell ourselves and, you know, how we how we make our minds hospitable places for us to live and like how we have to deceive ourselves to do that. So I think it's really interesting. Yeah, I think this film in a lot of ways takes away the big budget of Nolan's films and strips a lot of his other films down to their most basic elements. Like what you're saying, a lot of his stories are about usually a white male protagonist trying to grapple with the truth of their own life Mm -hmm. and trying to understand the world around them through the lens of the lies that they tell themselves or the lies that the people closest to them tell themselves or whatever. And I think that because it's so stripped down and so bare, it makes it really palatable. You mentioned the twist, but I mean, even before the big twist, I think the thing that I really like about this movie and the thing that makes it so easy to follow is that each scene, especially in the color version where, you know, the timeline where you're going back to the Mm -hmm. scene before what happens, each scene you actually are a little confused when you're watching it. You're like, I don't really understand what's the point of this scene. And then in the next scene, you get the context for that scene. Mm -hmm. So it's almost this like little series of tiny payoffs 
and our setups and payoffs instead of keeping you in the dark for the entire time and then revealing something at the very end. Mm-hmm. And I do think that the the big reveal at the end also works in a really brilliant way. I love that twist. I think it's one of the best twists in any film. Um, it's so dark. Mm-hmm. And it's also so badass in a way. Like, like you want to... You see him do that and you're like, yeah, get Teddy. Like, fuck that guy for screwing you over. But then also it is really, really dark and kind of depressing. And it ultimately begs the question, like, what happens to Lenny after this? That's the one thing that I think the movie keeps, like, gets away from because Mm -hmm. the ending of the film is the middle of the story. Mm -hmm. But like at the very end of this chronological story, when he's killed Lenny, what does he do now? Or I mean, he kills Teddy. What does he do now? Yeah, I mean, I think that's an interesting thing to think about, about, you know, how this movie is, you know, a snapshot of, as every movie is, of of someone's life who is larger than the events that it contains. And Nolan does love, I think, to start something in the middle. He loves to just insert you and sort mm-hmm. of let you figure it out. You know, he doesn't do a lot of, um, you know, overly expository conversations and things like that. I don't know that. about that. I think he's kind of notorious for his expository I mean, conversations. Ma- I feel like those are, I feel like they happen later in yeah. the movie, yeah, though. Yeah. Like, I think a lot, of, you know, we don't get those, like, scenes in the beginning where it's like, you're my brother, and we haven't seen our father for 21 years, you know? And I think that at least, you know, maybe he doesn't have it down to to avoid it entirely, but I do think that they start really quickly and you're immediately like, oh, where am I? Mm-hmm. Um, which reminds me a lot of, you know, in Inception when uh, they talk about how, you know, you never remember like the beginning of a dream. You you always just, you know, are thrown in the middle of it. And in that way, I think that, you know, his his films are like that, too. And I do think I don't think we've mentioned like and we have to note that he writes or co-writes almost all of his movies, which is why we're talking so much about plot. Because if we were talking about another director, you know, they might not be responsible as much for the story mm-hmm. that they're directing. But with Nolan, he is writing these stories. Um, I believe that he this is him and Jonathan Nolan for Memento, right? I have no idea, actually. I, th- I think it is. I'm pretty sure that this is based on a short story that I think that Jonathan yes, Nolan wrote. You're right. Yeah. Um, and he writes a lot of these these screenplays with his brother. But but that's why I think that that we get to, you know, credit so much of these stories to Nolan himself. Um, so it's beyond his capacity just as a director, but as a writer as well. Yeah. And I mean, I think this is obviously it's my number one. So it is the best example of that. And I think that this film also, because it's so stripped down and so straightforward in terms of the motivation of the characters, you get away with a lot of the more problematic parts of the Christopher Nolan script, where it's usually a character is motivated by a single thing. It actually works perfectly for this guy who Mm -hmm. only remembers one single thing and cannot be a complex character because he can't make new memories. It it makes a lot of sense. Um, And so I think this is like a perfect merging of Christopher Nolan and also Jonathan Nolan's strengths and like the subject matter. I think this is a fantastic script. Mm -hmm. So after what I think is Christopher Nolan's best film, he moves on to a perhaps forgotten piece of film history in Insomnia in 2002. Uh, This is a film starring Al Pacino and Robin Williams. Dana, what are your thoughts on Insomnia? So this is actually my bottom ranked movie. Oh, wow. This is my number 11, Um, which again, you know, it's it's definitely not a a horrible movie or anything. You know, this, you know, strong competition here. Um, 
Yeah, it's weird how little I feel like people talk about this movie. And caveat that I'm, you know, not at film school where people might be having these conversations. <laughs> so it's like not that weird, I guess. But but yeah, when we were looking it up, we were like, oh, wait, like Al Pacino is in this. Like why? And oh, it's like pretty highly rated on RT. Like wh- where did this movie go? Yeah, we should say that this is one of the only Nolan films that I hadn't seen before we started mm-hmm. And same, this whole I mean, series. Yeah. Like, um, like I had also seen most of them. Um, and I really hadn't even heard of this. But it definitely is something that sort of starts exploring more themes that Nolan will be interested in in his movies going forward, which I think is uh, the relationship between our responsibility to the law and our responsibility to what is right. Um, But not really, because the hero of our story (laughs) moves past the do the ends justify the means corrupt cop archetype relatively early in the movie when he kills his partner and proves willing to enter cahoots with the man he knows to be the killer that he set out to capture in the first place. Yes, he's pretty aggrieved about it, but he seems to benefit himself with some pretty lax moral relativism. Ultimately, I think that this movie doesn't have anything all that interesting to say about justice. It's a little bit of an exploration, but I don't think that it hits any, you know, points home. Will Dormer, who's played by Al Pacino, sort of earns his innocence back by sacrificing himself to kill Robin Williams, Walter Finch, and, you know, they both die. Um, and an ending that mirrors that which Finch has claimed all along, that they're the same because they both killed someone, but they're not murderers because they didn't mean to, which again is some really nice moral relativism to apply to yourself of like, I know I killed someone, but it's okay because I'm a good person. Um, and at the end, we're meant to understand that Dormer is finally at rest from his eponymous insomnia. And so there's this idea that, you know, he's been kept up at night throughout the whole movie because, you know, he feels bad about what he's done, and he should, so it's not that interesting to me, because there is, I, it would have been more Nolan-esque to me to have more ambiguity about whether or not he did kill his partner or something, but this movie is a little bit too all cards on the table for me to mm-hmm. have been truly interesting. What did you think? I think that's a fair assessment. Um, this is number eight for me. That means it's okay. lower to the bottom. Um, there's nothing that I really objected to in this movie but it also doesn't you know it's not as like you're saying it's not as profound as some of nolan's other films but i also don't really think that it's trying to be and i i think you're hitting it right on the head that like it's a very shallow exploration of a lot of these things one of the things that i do like about the film is that the al pacino character clearly comes to some sort of reconciliation at the very end and yeah he's grappling with these things but i think the takeaway at the end of the film is that he knows that he did a bad thing. Mm-hmm. And like, I think that he is willing to live with the retribution that that's going to cause, right? He doesn't tell, or he tells Hillary Swank not to throw the bullet away, even though she's fully willing to do it, because she knows that in her eyes and sort of in the public conscience's eyes, that he will be redeemed, right? But he knows that he's not redeemed in himself. Because mm-hmm. he knows that he did something wrong and he needs to pay for it. So I, I do think that it is at least taking a stance and saying that like that like even if you can get away with these things, right? Even if like the person or the the public is not really going to care or can't find out that this is something that will 
haunt you to your core and something that if you are a good person, you will not be able to get away with. So I think it's a little deeper than super surface level, but I agree that the film is more just interested in kind of telling a pretty straight procedural story, a crime mm-hmm. story, and also just showing to people at Warner Brothers, I presume, that Nolan can make a Batman movie. And that's something that, that came up in some of the, the reviews that we were reading was yeah. people saying that this was basically... Nolan's audition to studios to be like, give me a lot of money and I can make a good movie. Um, and I mean, I'm glad that that people saw this and felt that because I don't know that I would have. I mean, it, it's it's visually like it's a nice movie in that like a lot of I think like kind of cop movies are set in major metropolitan areas. And this is actually set in Alaska. So yeah. we get some nice ice scapes and stuff. And there's just a little bit of a different pace. Nolan um, loves his ice scapes. He does love his ice scapes. Um, one interesting thing is that I think of all of the movies, um, this is the only one that he didn't even co-write. And I I do think that that's probably a lot of why this is my least favorite. Like, I feel like I can tell he didn't write this um, because I it just doesn't have you know, some of some of those, again, those trademarks that I feel like he would have included in that, especially like, you know, he sort of sets up in the beginning that um, Will Dormer is an unreliable narrator. And he does prove unreliable in that, you know, he's lying to the people around him. But we as the audience don't get to experience right. that unreliable narration, which I think is actually something that that Nolan, maybe if he'd written this movie, that is something that we would have gotten. And I think it would have actually been nice to be kept a little bit more in the dark about what was going on so that we had more to wonder about. Because I think you and I, when we were watching the movie, we were like, is Robin Williams real? Like, maybe Robin Williams isn't even real. And Mm -hmm. Will Dormer is imagining him because we were coming up with all these theories that could have been interesting because we were like, I mean, it's a Nolan film, you know, what's going on? And then in the end, it was just kind of like, oh, I guess... Nothing is really going on. Yeah, there's no twist. And I think I actually um, on Twitter, somebody said that they hadn't seen this movie before when I commented that I was I was watching it. And um, I said, the one piece of advice that I want to give you for going into this movie is to like not think about it too hard. Mm-hmm. Take it at face value. Um, and I think that's a spoiler free hint to be like, don't try and think of this in Fight Club or Memento or Inception standards. And I think maybe part of the reason that you were a little frustrated with that is that it is a Christopher Nolan film, right? Like, yeah. I think if this was just a cop film told by, you know, yeah. Joe Schmo, then we'd probably be like, well, this is fine. And we wouldn't even talk this much about it. And nobody would talk this much about it. So maybe that is why no one talks about this Christopher Nolan film, because yeah. it's like the least Christopher Nolan of his films, with the exception of maybe Dunkirk a little bit. But but I still think that the craft that's in this movie is telling that he has a lot to do. And it's not just the screenwriting that makes him good. I think it's it's very clear he knows how to work with actors from this film. Yeah. It's clear he knows how to set up a scene and things like that. Um, like you're saying, it takes place in Alaska. So I really liked seeing the way that the film looks, even in 2020. Um, when you're looking at something from 2002, usually it's kind of crappy looking. But this one does look pretty beautiful and I, you're smiling because I say that about every movie we watch but we're watching a lot of really good looking movies um, but I really like getting to see the Alaskan wilderness and everything especially because yeah. a lot of Nolan's films are either CGI shots of space and stuff or they're in buildings mm-hmm. so I I there were there was a 
a couple things in this movie that I did really enjoy. Mm-hmm. The other thing is that I think Al Pacino does a great job at looking like the dude hasn't slept in days. Yeah. He was very convincing as somebody that was on the verge of a breakdown. Yeah, but I agree I that it doesn't really like play into anything much, right? Yeah, no. I think that for a lot of the movie, I was like, why is this even called insomnia? Like, how does, you know, what is the significance of his insomnia? And well, there's the guilt, right? Yeah, yeah. But again, there's, there's a moment when... Hilary Swank's character says, and she's a kind of like junior detective who would in theory look up to someone like Will Dormer. And she says to him something like, you know, a a good cop can't sleep at night because he's trying to find the missing piece of the puzzle and the bad cop can't sleep because of his conscience. And again, this is an example of something that I think if we were still wondering, well, is he a good cop or a bad cop? You know, which is it? Why can't he sleep? That could have been really interesting. But we knew why he couldn't sleep because he knew who the murderer was It was Robin Williams. He knew that. And we know that he killed his partner. So we knew that he had a guilty conscience. So it's like, okay, the guilt. But but why is that interesting? Well, so was there ever a moment where you thought that maybe he intentionally killed his partner? Or were you always sure that it was an accident? Oh, no. Yeah, no. I think very much that that they set you up to think that, you know, he might have done it on purpose. Yeah. So, I mean, maybe that's the sort of thing that he's struggling with. Because I think the other idea is that he doesn't know whether he did it on accident or on purpose. And maybe the film doesn't do a good job at like displaying that or having any sort of meaningful inner dialogue about that. But I think that's the thing that's keeping him up at night. Mm-hmm. Like trying to figure out, am I a good cop or just am I a good person or am I a bad person? Mm-hmm. Either way, um, pretty. It's, it's low on Dana's list at 11. It's eight for me. But um, I think I think we'd both agree that like if you haven't seen the movie, then it's I mean, you know the entire movie now, but it's worth watching. Yeah. 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 I would say so. All right. So we move on from Insomnia in 2002 all the way to Batman Begins in 2005, the era of Nolan's Batman films. They told me there was nothing out there. Nothing to fear. The night my parents were murdered, I caught a glimpse of something. I've looked for it ever since. I went around the world, searched in all the shadows. And there is something out there in the darkness. Something terrifying. Something that will not stop until I guess revenge. What are your thoughts, Dana? Um, So this actually cracks my top five at number five, in fact. Nice. Um, And so I'd I'd actually, this is one that I randomly hadn't seen, even though I had seen um, The Dark Knight and TDKR. But I guess this just sort of came out before I had any catalyst to be interested in it. And then I just never went back and watched it. Um, But I liked it a lot. And I think that this movie sets the precedent for the transcendence of comic book franchises as movies as movies. Um, And it's setting the stage for really interesting explorations in this trilogy of the dialectics between justice and law and order and disorder and between society and just like nihilism, anarchy, et cetera, et cetera, that I think this trilogy is really about. And 
I think that this remains so relevant to, you know, our present day circumstances when we see more than ever the extent of injustice that permeates our society and the extent to which those who both make the laws in our government, you know, our, our Congress people, our politicians, and the people who enforce those laws, like police departments and courts, are perpetrators and upholders of this injustice. So Batman begins, poses, pokes at that question of what do we as individuals do when this happens? Like, how how are we supposed to respond when all we can't trust any of the systems in place and, you know, our systems of checks and balances fail? Um, and so I'm not here to say that we should just revert to vigilante justice because <laughs> that's dangerous too. But I think that this is, you know, just a really interesting exploration of of justice through the lens of a quote unquote superhero character who's still very much a man. And I think that that's something that um, this movie sets up the the Batman trilogy to underscore again and again is that Bruce is just a man. Um, you know, he and, you know, he is very wealthy and he has his gadgets, although um, as we go forward, we'll talk about, you know, the extent to which that is really his power or, you know, if it comes from within or you know something dumb like that Mm -hmm. but um you know but i i think that i i just think that this movie is like legitimately like you could not care about superheroes at all and not care about batman at all and watch this and just think that this is a really good movie yeah i mean i completely agree i think that what this film does better than all of the other films in the series and better than any of the other batman films that i've seen is that it talks about the idea of batman as a symbol And that really is his superpower, that it's not so much that it really makes a difference that he's going around and arresting people. And I mean, to a to obviously at the climax of this movie, it does because he literally stops the entire city from going to shit. But the idea is that he's supposed to incite change around the city and be the symbol that, hey, if this guy's doing this, then I can do the right thing. Mm -hmm. And I mean, to an extent, that's what superheroes are at their core. That's what makes Spider-Man great. That's what makes Superman, Captain America great. And I think it's really um, great to do that to Batman because oftentimes people do write Batman off as just the crazy rich guy in the bat suit that kicks a lot of ass and Mm -hmm. beats people but doesn't kill them. so I agree. Uh, this is also number five for me. Hmm. Batman Begins. It's so nice to finally figure out what happens to Bruce Wayne's <laughs> parents. Like that was such a mystery in my life. And I'm glad that we finally got that figured out. Um, but I mean, on a like on an actual serious criticism, I think that this is a really great origin of Bruce Wayne as a character. And then also the origin of Batman and getting to see the first time that he goes out there. And I think as as I was saying previously, there's some really dumb things about Batman, like, you know, refusing to kill people, for example. And the way that this film justifies that makes a lot of sense in a realistic way. And it's so it's not so much that the, the dark and grittiness of this character is what makes it real, but it's that I understand why he's a character that's willing to dress up as a bat and fight crime, but is not willing to kill people. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, I, I think that we have talked about and there are you know a lot of jokes about you know the idea of his unwillingness to kill people is a little bit 
oversimplify yeah. <laughs> because he definitely does a lot of things that would lead to people dying like flipping cop cars yeah. and shit it's like okay buddy or when he you know he won't kill the guy that Raza Ghoul wants him to kill in the beginning so then he just like lights the whole league of shadows building on fire yeah. <laughs> and you know blows it up and it's like mm, people are probably gonna die um but you know it, especially when he does that it's like you know, Raza Ghoul says, you know, well, why, why won't you kill him? Like he's he's killed someone, and we know that we know that Bruce is motivated by the idea of revenge. If anyone is, because he's really been set on this path because he watched his parents die. But I think that this moment when he refuses to do that does set up this idea that he's not his idea of justice isn't just so reductive to be just retributive and you know an eye for an eye and that it is more complicated than that for him and that he does believe that he doesn't have this divine right to decide who should live and who should die yeah and i think that this film does a really good job at pointing out that there is a difference between striking down somebody because they did something bad like it would be if he murdered that guy who, you know, committed a crime or whatever versus accidentally, I guess, maybe not so accidentally, but doing something that doesn't have the intention of killing someone, which I mean, I guess is sort of the argument for why he can set the thing up on fire. He's using it to like escape and mm. he's not trying to actively kill these people. He's just trying to get away. Yeah. It's and like sure, the trolley problem, but should you kill one man or <laughs> blow up a building? <laughs> I mean, it's, it's a little, there's, there's a lot of gray area and I also can't excuse like flipping a cop car into another cop car. Cause like several people are definitely dead. But, um, that also leads to, I think, what is my main criticism of this film, which is that I really like the first two hours of the film, but the last 30 minutes get a little too campy for the rest of the film. And like when the city starts freaking out and they have like bejeweled eyes and everybody's freaked out, like apparently glowing Halloween eyes are what everybody's scared of in Gotham, I guess. All of that stuff is a little too ridiculous for me for the rest of the film. And I think that's where it suffers. Yeah, I mean, which is interesting because I think that a lot of and, you know, I'm I'm far from a, a scholar of Batman, but I feel like a lot of the like older Batman stuff was a lot campier. So in some sense, there is precedent and tradition for that. But insofar as, like you said, the first two hours of this movie are very much a departure from that and are a very like much more kind of serious, dark, gritty Batman um, that, yeah, that's a little bit of a tonal shift. Yeah, I mean, it's not that I oppose Batman fighting like a Mr. Freeze or a Scarecrow. Yeah. The idea of Scarecrow is really cool, but I just think that the way that it's executed becomes a little bit like very classic superhero thing, mm -hmm. whereas the rest of the film is more this ideological struggle and all of this stuff. And so so I just I think that this film, I know there's a lot of people that are like Batman Begins is the best in the trilogy. I guess spoilers for The Dark Knight. I think The Dark Knight is still better. I don't particularly agree with that thought, but like I think that's the reason why. Where it's it's it just doesn't quite nail the landing at the very end for mm -hmm. me personally. Yeah, and I mean I think also just that Scarecrow is not as compelling of a villain yeah. as the Joker. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and move on to the Prestige uh, in 2006. So a year later, Christopher Nolan comes out with his next movie, no longer about men who dress up as bats. <laughs> it's about magicians. So. Before I give my score, I'll, I'll start with my thoughts. 
I I have to say that this movie is fucking ridiculous. <laughs> like it is absolutely batshit stupid. This is a movie about two magicians, magicians, Dana, two magicians in the 1800s, by the way, who are competing to one up each other. And it culminates. This movie culminates in both of them doing a teleportation magic trick where the reveal is that one of them is a secret twin and the other used actual magic to teleport. Or science. Yeah, okay. <laughs> oh, I, sorry. Remind me the time in American history where Nikola Tesla invented teleportation. Oh, well, I guess the point is that they destroyed it's it, right? It's a fictional historical science <laughs> okay. that we're still working no, I on. Mean, I mean, I just, I think that just the concept of this movie is super dumb and nobody talks about how ridiculous it is. I know we had a brief conversation about like, it's kind of silly that they're magicians, but like so many people adore this movie. And then there's a lot of people that will like scoff at superhero movies. And I know you don't scoff at superhero movies, so I'm not like saying this to call you out or anything, but I think anybody who's like the prestige is a good movie. And then is like, Wow, people getting excited for the Disney Plus reveal? That's kitty shit. Need to like buy a mirror and do some serious retrospection because this is like this movie is just absolutely absurd. Yeah, I won't get a how ahead of myself too much and I know that you're you're going to give your thoughts first, but I did also include, you know, some thoughts on this and I I love 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 this movie. And yeah, no, it's 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 so funny to me that it's about magicians. And that's why part of it's so funny to me that it's it's, you know, it's so serious and it takes itself so seriously. But it's also about magicians. <laughs> and I think of um, Job's alliance of magicians from Arrested yeah. Development with We Demand to be taken seriously um, because it's like, what, like, where did they come up with this? And this is based on a novel um, that I did try to read, um, but it's not very good, and it actually is very different. But yeah, this the, it's it's crazy that this really serious movie is just, and it doesn't ever kind of reference its own ridiculousness. You know, it's not no. like it's 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 not irreverent at all. Like it very <laughs> much acts as if you know we all kind of hold magic in this really high regard, and magicians are some of our most respected individuals, um, which is probably not true. There's a point in this movie where they just happen to stumble upon an identical Hugh Jackman lookalike. That's like a whole part of this movie where there's just another random guy that looks exactly like Hugh Jackman. That is literally the premise of a shitty Netflix Christmas movie that we watched last week. So I say all of this because despite that, this film is very, very good. It's my number five film. Okay. So Wait, you just said Batman Begins was your number four. Sorry, it's my number four. Um, above Batman Begins. So I think that the slow build and the one-upmanship is really cinematic. It's really entertaining. And of course, we're talking about how it's absurd that they're magicians, but the magicians are, of course, a stand-in for basically any craft or profession mm -hmm. or the idea of sacrifice needed to, to excel in whatever you want. You know, it could be filmmaking like it probably is in Christopher Nolan's mind. mind. It could be, you know, whatever. Like, it could be whatever you want. So I think there's a very good universality aspect of this film. And I think that's what people really latch on to. I just find it really hard to believe that nobody talks about how stupid the movie is. <laughs> what are your thoughts, Dana? Um, as you know, I love this movie. This is my number one. And that, you know, it's tough because I do. I think it's like, quote unquote, the best 
of his movies from like a craft perspective, probably not, but it is my favorite. Yeah, and who cares? I, I had to say number one. And in full transparency to the listener, it was I who originally pitched a Nolan filmography episode to Mati, and largely I did that was because I wanted to rewatch this movie with him, <laughs> and he kept kind of pushing it off. And I was like, well, what if we did an episode the week that Tenet comes out? And we were like, okay, we have two weeks to watch all of these movies, so that's what we did. And I, I, and I wanted to watch it with him because I've seen it a bunch of times, but I just love watching this movie with different people and mm-hmm. talking to different people about it. And I just, I, I love it so much. And you know, on its surface, it's about magic, and I love how the movie itself is so dedicated to mirroring that magic in the way that it's structured. So, you know, with the from the first line of the movie with Are You Watching Closely, um, it clues us into the fact that what we are watching is a trick, like that he is setting us up to be watching a magic trick. And the dialogue then immediately outlines for us that three-act structure for a good magic trick and that movie, this movie will, of course, go on to then mirror that that three-act structure. Mm-hmm. So the pledge, the turn, and the prestige, which which leads me to, I think that this movie has, has some amazing twists. And to me, they're amazing, not because, you know, they're so clever or, you know, it's something that no one could have thought of. But I think that it's because there's so much transparency about what the twists are. Yeah. And, in, and it's one of those movies when you go back and watch it and you're just like, well, of course, like, yeah, like there are so many lines that let you know what's really going on. Yeah, there's there was one point in the movie where I was just baffled that I, as well as nobody else who has ever seen this movie, probably realized that it was Christian Bale playing the assistant or whatever Fallon, they call it. Yeah. The ingenue or something yeah. of the Christian Bale character. Like he's in makeup a little bit, but it's pretty clear that it's Christopher Nolan. Or I mean, that it's Christian Bale. And I think, I mean, I say this again and again on this podcast, that the best twists are the ones that are obvious in retrospect. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even what you're saying, the, in the very first scene, he's doing the trick with birds that Hugh Jackman essentially does mm-hmm. with the magical teleportation mm-hmm. thing. Yeah. And as Michael Caine's character, Cutter, says, then from that first opening kind of little monologue he goes on, he says, you want to be fooled. And he's talking to us, the audience. And it's like, we have been unconsciously trained on how to be an audience member in such a way that does leave us blind to things that are right in front of us. Um, And as an audience member, it can feel frustrating to feel like you're being jerked around. So if you feel like, you know, at the end, you feel like you've been deceived, but you don't feel angry about that unless it's earned and, you know, well executed and you have been shown the pledge and the turn. And Mm so it's it again functions in the way that the magic trick does and i think in that sense you know nolan i think you know maybe maybe this really resonated with him because he felt that there was a relationship between how a good magic trick works and how you make a good twist movie mm-hmm. um which i think is really interesting and you know thematically this movie is very much in the nolan verse just the ideas of obsession and like i have to succeed no matter the cost and the the moral relativity and i think that you know it's something that is is able to be very you know weighty in some aspects but it still feels kind of escapist because of the whole magician thing so i feel like even if you're kind of like you know like in a in a dark mood or whatever like this isn't a happy movie but it still feels like something you can put on and you know just get out of yourself because it's it's so just different and and kind of absurd in a fun way and Nolan manages to kill not one, 
but two different wives he does, in this movie. He does kill kill two wives. But anyways, I yeah, I'm, I'm really glad that you like this movie so much. I also really enjoy it. I think it is one of his best movies. Of course, it's my number four. And for the record, I did obviously predict that this was your number one. Yeah. Given how much we've talked about it, even before the conception of this crazy podcast. Mm-hmm. All right. So after that, we just get blockbuster hit after blockbuster hit from Christopher Nolan, starting with 2008's The Dark Knight. Dana, thoughts on The Dark Knight? I mean, obviously, this movie is very good. Like, it yeah. <laughs> feels dumb to even say. Um, it does have my, uh, more of a feeling of an action movie than the character-driven movie of Batman Begins. Um, there's a lot of guns and heists and things like that, which sometimes when I'm watching movies, like that's my cue to tune out because that's not kind of my (laughs) jam, but it's almost impossible to tune out during this movie, which is due to no lack of its strong points. But foremost among these is, is obviously Heath Ledger's Joker, um, who is one of, if not the most iconic villain characters of Mm -hmm. all time. And he's just so chaotic that you can't look away. And it's interesting, I think Nolan also plays with the pacing of the scenes a lot in the movie. So the scenes where the Joker talks or has like monologues, like they're they're much more quiet and they build very slowly. And I feel like you watch them and I've seen this movie before, but still watching the scenes with him, you're just like, ah, like what is what is he gonna do? Yeah. Um, versus I think a lot of the other scenes move very quickly and there's a lot happening, um, and you know, a lot of a noise. The Joker is a really interesting character for Nolan to take on because Nolan is obsessed with characters' motivations. And the Joker isn't out for anything that most of us can relate to, you know, like money or love or fame or anything. He just wants chaos and mayhem, et cetera, et cetera. And he's so scary to us, I think, because we are programmed to be afraid of disorder. And when we can't reason with someone or understand what they want, then we don't know what to do with that. And so I think that that's why he's he's so terrifying to us because he legitimately does want to just bring down the entire system. Um, And it's interesting because Bruce Wayne, too, is someone who has lost faith in the system, but he's just responded to it very differently by becoming Batman. But unlike, you know, other superheroes, he doesn't have a chemical reaction that makes him Batman or anything like that. He's not bitten by a spider. He just makes Batman of himself. And I think that this is really a hearkening from Chris Nolan to existential philosophers who I think he really does love and draw on a lot. And I'm particularly reminded of there's a French philosopher, Jean-Paul Sartre, who who famously said that man is condemned to be free. So that's kind of our punishment is that we do have free will. And he posited that if there's no God, then we're not governed by a higher power and there's no one controlling our lives. So what we have So what happens to us is our responsibility. And so whereas someone like the Joker sees this idea as, you know, there's no higher power and we can do whatever we want as license to, you know, act completely chaotically and evilly and that life is meaningless, Bruce, whether consciously or not, has taken the knowledge of this burden of responsibility um, for mankind and the idea that it lies in the individual to make his own meaning. And I think that that is what he realizes so important. And like you mentioned earlier, the idea of becoming a symbol, because he understands that humans need something to project meaning onto. Um, And especially when we see this character of Harvey Dent come in, we see how that's so important because Batman knows that he is a symbol, but it would be even better to have someone who they see as human and someone they see as like them. So even those like campaign stickers that say like, I believe in Harvey Dent, like to me, that's like, 
he is trying to make Harvey Dent into like a Jesus figure for them. Mm -hmm. And so he does sort of die for the sins of the city and Batman tries to make him be remembered that way. And so I think that this film is actually super, super philosophically dense and I love it for that. Wow. I think if Joker wants one thing, it's to show the world that everyone is as fucked up as he is. He just doesn't have the pretense to hide it. Mm -hmm. And I think what this movie does really well, and I think, you know, if I keep bringing up David Fincher, he's on my mind a lot. Um, If David Fincher were to do this episode, then he would have some sort of seven ending where everybody does kill everybody. Mm -hmm. But this movie actually gives the people the option to save themselves and not kill the other boat in that kind of, it's not two trolley problem, it's two boats problem where you either become a killer and kill the people yeah, it's like or a prisoner's you dilemma. Yeah. So I think that this film is actually really optimistic in the outlook of humanity and I it's pretty profound in that way. I, I agree. What what is this for you? What ranking? Um number 3. It's number 3 for me as well. I remember there was a time around like the release of The Avengers and The Dark Knight Rises that I thought that this movie was overrated. I think that this is the first of Nolan's films to suffer from the Nolan is a genius mantra or mentality. I think it's really great to be passionate about a director and their filmography, but it also does lead to ridiculous hyperbole. And I I think a lot of where people get frustrated with this film is this sort of desperate desire to laud this thing as the quote unquote best comic book movie ever made. And I think if you have that opinion, that's fine. I personally don't think it's the best comic book movie ever made. But I do think that because everybody or a lot of people were saying this is the best comic book movie ever made, I kind of wanted to actively not like the movie for that. Mm -hmm. Um, So for a long time, I was really caught up in this. The Dark Knight's kind of overrated. But everything you're saying is really is completely true. This movie is fantastic. The Heath Ledger performance alone. And I mean, that's such a ridiculous thing to even waste time talking about in a podcast because it's so true. Mm -hmm. But I mean, the thing that blew my mind on this most recent watch was that this dude is 28. Yeah. And he is sizing up and in a way outsmarting Christian Bale, uh, Gary Oldman, um, Aaron Eckert to to a less extent. But like these kind of giants and it's this 28 year old dude giving an insane performance. So I mean that alone, but yeah, everything else that you're talking about in this film, so great, the philosophical morals, everything about this film just works in a really solid way. And I think one of the other things that really feels great about this film is the epicness and the scope of it. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's almost like this film is trying to like the Joker is the ultimate Batman villain, at least this iteration of mm-hmm. the Joker. And I know there are people that probably prefer the more campy Joker and the Joker that's kind of just, you know, doing this back and forth thing with Batman. But this Joker has so much gravity, gravitas, mm-hmm. that it's hard to imagine this as anything other than like a capper to a trilogy. Yeah, no, it is. It is interesting that this is the the midsection and that, of course, um, Heath Ledger passed away after um, after this movie was made and before it came out. Um, and so, you know, he wasn't around for the culmination of the trilogy. Like, I don't think that he would have been, you know, the, the main villain going forward anyway. But 
Oh, I think he would have. Oh, you think I so? Think, I think they would have done the third film where he wouldn't be the only villain, yeah. but he would be back for sure. Yeah. And it, well, I mean, it is really interesting to think of how that would have panned out. And it makes sense that they didn't recast him because, you know, after that performance, how could you? And, you know, right. even if they wanted to, people would have like been really upset. And, you know, that's that's rightfully so. And I think that it's it's interesting what you said. And I agree how much Christopher Nolan and this movie comes down on the ideology of the Joker. And I think that it it, it takes this this stance that and I think you you know, you and I have talked about in the past about this idea of people misinterpreting messages from movies because they see a philosophy represented in the movie. They think that movie is sort of like condoning that philosophy mm-hmm. or promulgating it. And I, I don't think that that's like a major thing because I think that people obviously know that the Joker is bad. Like no one's like, oh, like he, maybe he's the hero. Um, Glorifying the Joker. Well, you say that, but well, also yeah. the Joker just came out yeah, and no. people were like, oh, it's glorifying this. Yeah, well, that's what I was going to say is just or just kind of ask you about like, do you think that people there were people who had that response to this movie? Because I do think that for some people, the Joker is almost like a kind of icon in a positive way of like like chaos is the answer and like we have to bring down the system you know well i've always found it weird that the joker is he's an an animated character in a lot of things and there's like children's pjs with joker on them and like in this film he is a mass murderer Mm -hmm. and in most iterations of the character other than maybe like the lego batman Mm -hmm. he murders people uh so there is this sort of weird obsession with the joker and i don't know how much of that is just like oh i like watching batman have to pit against that so much as it is idolization of that Mm -hmm. but um you know i i think it sort of depends on the director and the film and i think particularly for this film christopher nolan does a very good job at like making him he he's not in like a nice suit he's not dressed up and suave like some of the other joker um iterations he's really gross suave clown well i mean have you i mean like if you look at the animated ones he's he's always in a very nice polished shoot yeah and like the slick back hair hair, yeah and and like he's usually very opulent and around a ton of money and i mean christopher nolan's joker in this film even goes to even burns an entire stack of money he's not in it for the money Mm -hmm. so i think by making him just this pure essence of chaos and um, chaotic evil that it kind of makes it so that even the dumbest of film viewer couldn't possibly like support this guy, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. Before we move on, I think the one thing that I want to mention about this film that I think is its biggest flaw is that I have absolutely zero shits to give about the Rachel Bruce Harvey Dent love triangle. Like, I think that whole thing, I mean, Maggie Gyllenhaal is perfectly fine in the role. I don't think it was a bad idea to, like, recap. I don't really know why they did that or anything. But, like, her relationships with Batman and Harvey Dent are just so boring to me. Yeah. And I think that is one of the things that Christopher Nolan is pretty bad at in general. I think he's not very good at writing emotional relationships, especially relationships that involve women. Because I think actually some of his buddy-buddy relationships, like male-on-male relationships, mm-hmm. are fairly interesting. You know, you've got some in Inception, um, Tenet. Also, there's like a camaraderie that I think he's actually pretty solid at writing. But when it comes to like 
true emotion between a man and a woman, I think he does a pretty bad job at it. In this film, not a huge deal because that's obviously not the focus point of the movie until the last 15 minutes when it's like you're supposed to really sympathize with Harvey Dent and see that this is why he went crazy. And also there's like repercussions of Maggie Gyllenhaal dying and saying she was going to leave Harvey Dent for or for Bruce in the third film. So I think that is a little poorly handled. What do you think? Yeah, I agree with that. And I think that, and maybe just because of the setup from Batman Begins, but because we know that Bruce and Rachel have history, I can believe that a little bit more because we at least know from the story, okay, there's a lot that we haven't seen in this relationship. But the relationship between Rachel and Harvey, yeah, I don't care about at all because he just kind of shows up on the scene to us at the beginning of this movie. And then, you know, she's kind of conflicted, it seems, over which one of them she loves. But then very abruptly, it's like, no, it was going to be Harvey. And I agree that to me, the Harvey Dent turned into Two-Face felt really not earned to me. It's the most comic booky part of this movie, I would say. Like, just, yeah. oh, he's a villain, so he's just going to be a villain now. Yeah, and I, in insofar as it is th- that, I think it's fine. But if you were to take the sort of Batman aspects of this out of this movie, which I don't know why you would, because it's a Batman <laughs> movie. But if you were to just, you know, consume this as a film that's something else, you would be like, wait, like, th- this escalated extremely quickly. <laughs> the, like, all of a sudden, he just is a psycho. And we haven't seen enough of his relationship with Rachel, I feel like, to believe that his entire system of ideals would just crumble because someone he loved died. And I I know that, you know, grief can do a lot of things to people, but I also know that a lot of people in the real world and in movies lose someone they love and they don't do this. So it's a little bit like... You know, it's not like, oh, we can understand, you know, where he's coming from because he did just have (laughs) someone die. Like, And obviously she died in a horrible way, but it is a little bit like, wait, how did someone who was supposedly this good suddenly become this evil? Ian's going to massacre me if I am citing the wrong comic for this, but um, there is a very famous comic. I believe it's The Killing Joke where um, Joker's whole thing with Batman in that comic book, um, little mini arc or whatever, is that he says, he keeps saying, the only difference between you and me is one bad day, right? Somewhere in Joker's history, he had one bad day, he snapped, and now he's insane. All that's different between insanity and Batman sanity is one bad day. Mm-hmm. And so I guess the Harvey Dent character is is that, right? He, he is the self-fulfilling prophecy of Joker's mentality that... All you need is a little push and people go insane. So I, I get it from a very like thematic point of view, but in actual practice and in terms of the realism, which the movie is obviously clearly trying to go for as far as this movie can be realistic. Yeah, it's a little like, all right, calm down, Harvey. I know I know your face is also ridiculously scarred from some burn. Yeah, but which like, does look really cool. Like, it's yeah. not at all what that would look like, but it does look really cool. Yeah. All right, let's go ahead and take a break here. And when we return, we'll continue our ranking of Christopher Nolan's filmography with 2010's Inception. Hey, hey there. there. I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. 
We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. All right, we're back and talking about Nolan's seventh film, Inception from 2010. <laughs> What's the most resilient parasite? An idea. A single idea from the human mind can build cities. Transform the world and rewrite all the rules. Which is why I have to steal it. All right, I'll start off with my thoughts on Inception. This is the movie about dreams. This was a cultural phenomenon. I feel like this movie was the only movie that anyone talked about in 2010 with the very large caveat that I was a teenage boy in 2010. So, of course, Inception was right on my radar. Um, This film is really, really good. It is my number two. Was that your guess? Um, That was, I guess that you would have that at number three. Okay. I think if I had to describe Inception with one word, it would be fun. And I think that's one of the best compliments that you can give to a film, especially a film like this that is a blockbuster. And I think that this film is incredibly easy to enjoy. And yes, there's a lot of stuff, especially in the third act, that you need to have to have been paying pretty close attention for the entire movie to fully understand them. But you also really don't have to if you don't want to. I think, at least in my opinion, I I think you can consume this film as pure entertainment and understand almost all of it by just understanding the surface level plot, which is people go into dreams, they need to implant an idea into this guy's dream, let's go, right? I I think we, even when we were watching it, were like, wait, how is this working? Why is this the thing that incepts the dream? All this stuff. But it ultimately doesn't really matter, in my opinion. I, I don't think that your thoughts on Inception are directly related to whether you completely understand it or not. And I think that's very different from something like Tenet, which is almost aggressively complicated, and it really doesn't give you a lot to hold on to unless you really understand exactly what's happening. That's obviously on purpose. We'll save that for the Tenet discussion. But what I really latched onto in this film is the world building of how the dreams, the extraction, the Inception, how all of that works. They obviously have the Elliot Page character as a novice on the team so that DiCaprio can literally explain every single thing to um, his character. And that's by extension to the audience. But all of that detail, I think the terms for everyone in the group, you've got a forger, you've got a chemist, all of that is just so fun. And they show it in this montage of dream hopping and training. I'm a sucker for a training montage. So I really just love how fun this movie is. I would definitely watch a TV show in this world, although I'm willing to bet that Christopher Nolan 
especially for HBO Max, will yeah. never make an Inception TV show. So maybe they'd maybe they'll only if they'll air it in movie theaters. Yeah, <laughs> but I I just think that this movie is just an absolute blast and it really is one of the best blockbusters that also has a whole other layer that you can continually go back to and sit down and have a conversation about how does the timing work? What is meaning here? What's the ending? Is his totem actually the wedding ring? Blah, blah, blah. So I think it works on both of those levels. Yeah, this movie is gigantic. I, on your note about just the cultural phenomenon aspect of it, I remember being like 14. And I feel like this is one of the first movies that, you know, it wasn't part of any franchise or a book that I'd read or something that I remember me and my friends being like, this looks so cool. We have to see it. Mm -hmm. um, and, and it is so cool. Like the concept of being able to enter people's dreams opens up an awesome world for storytelling, both plot wise and just visually slash like cinematographically speaking. Um, you know, you get so much on the screen that isn't possible in the real world, just, you know, buildings, you know, bending to people's whims and things that, you know, do feel like they are of dreams and like they are of the imagination that we normally don't get to see. And I think it's helpful that, you know, this this isn't a sci-fi movie. And like you said, it almost doesn't really matter how they kind of do this dream entering yeah. process. Um, and I and I'm glad because I I we know that this isn't possible for us. So we don't want to watch a, you know, a pseudoscientific explanation for 20 minutes about about how they do that. With that being said, I, I do think that the premise is a little bit absurd and not the going into people's dreams part, because that I understand is just we accept that. But I think that the idea of, you know, how confident that they are that like they can plant an idea somewhere in someone's mind and just the domino effect that 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 will have in that person's life, I think you would need to have a very deep understanding of human psychology to be able to make that claim. And I don't think that this is their area of expertise. So I don't really know about that. Well, I feel like that's a complaint for a lot of Christopher Nolan's movies that it, like there's a lot of coincidences that happen mm -hmm. in that. And obviously the end of this movie is very much like he pops out of the dream and he's like, I'm going to dissolve my father's company. Yeah. It worked, guys. But like, you know, same thing with the Joker in The Dark Knight. Some of his plans require so much forethought. And if anything mm -hmm. goes wrong, it doesn't matter whatsoever. You, you know, so fair criticism. But I think it, it could be applied to a lot of his movies, I would say. Yeah, I think I think that's true. But I, but again, I do like this movie. I do think that um, I knew that you would rank this higher than I would. I actually have this at number six. Oh, man. I, I guess that this was your number two. Oh, really? Yeah. yeah, no, I. OK, to be fair, I think I have a little bit of Inception fatigue because I have seen this movie a bunch of times. Mm -hmm. And so I think I was just a little bit, you know, less interested in it because I've seen it several times. Um, and so I was kind of like, yeah, like, you know, none of this is surprising to me. It's interesting to me to watch it through the lens of the idea that the events of the entire movie could be a dream, which is sort of put forward to us through the character of Cobb's wife, Maul, who becomes obsessed with the idea um, that the real life that she's living is just another level of dream. And she's portrayed as insane for thinking of this. But then there's this creeping question in Leonardo DiCaprio's mind, and then again in our minds as a viewer of, well, what if she's right? And of course, that's then mirrored at the end when, you know, he spins his top and, you know, we don't really get to see at the end if it stops spinning or not. I think we're led to believe that it's going to stop, but we're not sure. And I think that that's really interesting to think about because 
we have this grasp on reality that we think, you know, well, like, of course I'm not dreaming. Of course this is really happening. But when you're dreaming, you also have, you know, this idea mm-hmm. that like I am dream, I'm the, this is your world. And so I think that it's a really interesting concept of walking this line between how can we know what's real and what's a dream. And I think that Nolan found a really cool way to explain it with this movie. And I think that he found a way to make dreams fantastical enough to be really, again, visually compelling and compelling for a storytelling perspective. But it's not, you know, so far-fetched that, you know, like, oh, like a demon monster is chasing us now type thing (laughs) that I think could have made the movie, like, silly. So I think that he does a lot of um, kind of median walking that works out really well for this movie. What I really like about the end scene of this movie is that, yes, there's a question, is this top going to stop spinning? Is it not going to stop spinning? But I think insofar as the Dom Cobb character is concerned, the point is that he doesn't care. He's with his kids. And I think this goes ultimately back to the very first, or not the first film, but the second film that Nolan made with Memento is like, we create the realities of our own lives. We Mm -hmm. tell ourselves lies. Does that really matter? And I, I guess there is like a philosophical question or an existentialist question of, is everything that we're in a dream? But ultimately, I think the at least the Dom Cobb character is saying, it doesn't matter to me because I'm with my family. It's where I want to be. And so, you know, sure, the movie ends and he very easily, after hugging his kids, could come back to the table and be like, is it still spinning? Shit. Well, let's get back out there. But as far as the film is concerned, it's saying it doesn't actually matter if he's in a dream or not because he's he's done what he wanted to do. Mm-hmm. And I think depending on how comfortable you are with like the idea of whether we're in a matrix or not, that's like an either like kind of a scary ending or a good ending for me. It's a good ending. Cause like, I don't really care if I'm in the matrix. If this is all a dream, I still have to live my life, you know? So, um, I know we've had a conversation about that and you kind of disagree, but I really like that this film poses that question and then ultimately says, guys, it, it doesn't matter. Mm-hmm. Well, not even necessarily that it doesn't matter, but to this to, character, yeah, exactly. it doesn't matter. I should be and careful I, about that. Yeah, and I, I do think it's significant, that distinction. That, yeah. And that reminds me that when I was watching this, I realized a movie that this really reminds me of, and not just because it stars Leonardo Di- DiCaprio, is a movie that is not a Nolan movie, but feels a lot like one, which is Shutter Island, mm-hmm. um, where Leonardo DiCaprio's character makes up this whole delusion for himself Um in which, you know, oh, I guess I shouldn't spoil this because we didn't give spoiler warnings for this. Yeah, I was going to say, um, okay. but it's fine. Sorry. Um, but the the idea, you know, that, um, you know, again, we, we tell ourselves lies. And this goes back to that theme that we were talking about with Memento is, you know, sometimes, you know, we do deceive ourselves or we're comfortable with knowing that we are not living at, you know, in the full light of the truth as much as we possibly could, but we are okay with that because the truth can be so hard or so hurtful that sometimes it just is easier to just go on with the level um, of knowledge that we have. Um, And also in, you know, Shutter Island, there's just, I guess, I don't know why I'm still saying this again, but I mean, if you like (laughs) Nolan movies and you haven't seen Shutter Island for some reason, you would probably really like it. Um, And that's Scorsese. So hot take, he's pretty good. Um, (laughs) (laughs) If Inception was real, I think it would be a really great way to keep me hydrated. Um, (laughs) 
as you know, I'm very bad I at drinking water. And I'm also not very receptive to you telling me to drink water. So I think what would be great is if you developed the Inception technology and then went into my dreams and incepted mm-hmm. me to make sure I drink water. Mm-hmm. Would yeah. you do that for me? I would. Thank um, you. I don't. I don't know what the incepting kind of impulse would be that would 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 set that off in you, but because in theory it would be a kind of survival instinct, but <laughs> I don't know. I'm, I'm sure a team in France could figure it out. Yeah. So. I will also say before we move on that insofar as if you're going to have a dead wife in your movie, I think this movie handles that pretty well. Um, it it does it in the most compelling way, and I obviously part of that is because we're in dreams, so she's more or less, you know, not dead for the most of the the runtime. So she has at least some agency, even though that agency is within the mind of her husband. But I think that another part that really makes this like my favorite dead wife of the Nolan universe is that Leonardo DiCaprio does a really good job at selling that emotional relationship. Like you can tell that there is emotional love there and that's not something that I always get from Christopher Nolan's other movies where it's sort of just like, guys, he's got a dead wife. Of course he loved her. That's what's motivating him. I feel like in this film, Leonardo Leonardo DiCaprio really sells that. Yeah. I mean, Leo is really good at looking like he's in pain, um, <laughs> which which works out well for this movie. And yeah, I mean, I think, I think that the character of Maul is, I mean, yeah, she, she is on screen and she is present in this movie. Um, but it again, she, she, I don't think she's portrayed very sympathetically given sort of what we understand her mental condition to be. Because I think that when you're watching it, you find her to be a really frustrating character because you operate under the assumption that she's definitely wrong, but you don't understand sort of her thought process on what she thinks she's experiencing and it it makes a lot of sense that that would could drive someone to be very mentally unwell and i don't think that the movie portrays that incredibly sympathetically i think what we need is an hbo max series (laughs) that is a prequel series which takes place in limbo between leonardo dicaprio and marion cotillard Hmm. i think that would really flesh it out yeah all right let's go ahead and move on to christopher nolan's last dark knight film for now The Dark Knight Rises from 2012. Dana, thoughts and ranking on The Dark Knight Rises? Yeah, so this is actually, this is um, my lowest ranked Batman movie, um, coming in at number eight on my Nolan ranking. Um, It's still, of course, very cool, and it continues to subvert those ideas of what a superhero movie is and can be. And, you know, coming in at the very beginning, we get a time jump, um, from the events of the prior two movies, which happened pretty much one right after another, I think. Um, and we see Bruce at first completely stripped of his purpose and then of his money and then of his freedom when he's imprisoned by Bane. And yet he he does rise, as the title would have us know. Um, <laughs> and he is ultimately able to pull himself out of a pit, hello metaphor, um, to which he has been confined after we see everything having been taken away from him using nothing but his body and his strength of will. And so herein, this is super corny, but we see what, you know, has been making Bruce kind of super all along. So I think that this is a, this is a really important piece of this trilogy is, is 
taking away from people who could say, you know, well, Batman can only do the things he does because of the money or because of the gadgets. Because I think that one of the central triumphs in this movie is is Bruce jumping out of that pit that he gets in. And he does that just completely by um, his own volition. The whole movie is about getting out of a pit. And it's about Bruce doing that not for himself, because as the movie addresses, he's not really afraid of dying or the idea isn't really, you know, that he doesn't want to die. But he is reinvigorated with purpose to make sacrifices for others, which is in direct contrast to Bane's philosophy of similar to the Joker, kind of just extreme individualism, wherein he advocates, you know, people are free to do whatever they want to the point where they're going to destroy each other. And Nolan here, I think, is making the case for holding on to ideals um, you know, our de- ideals for justice and for society in general, and pointing out the danger of abandoning our ideals just because we think that we can't achieve them. Um, so, you know, at the beginning, Bruce had sort of kind of, you know, felt like, oh, they don't need me anymore. And, you know, it's I, ca- I just can't do it anymore. And I think that, you know, we do feel that way often in life of just, you know, well, I, I just, you know, they're so, it's so hard to do what's right. And you see everyone around you, um, you know, acting out of self-interest. But I think that no one here is sort of making a really optimistic view ultimately of what, at least what we can have, if not what we have now is, is that we can work towards our ideals. If not create an ideal society, we can make our world better at the individual level. Your philosophical analysis of the Dark Knight trilogy could just make like a whole podcast, not even a (laughs) podcast episode, but like teach a class on this. This is way above my pay grade, Dana. I'm I'm very blown away by all of that. I I mean, I, I agree. I think this movie continues the legacy of Batman Begins and the Dark Knight of being about the interesting dynamic between good and evil. I mean, that's that's really simplistic, but that's basically what it is. Justice and revenge, justice and violence, whatever. I think this film had the impossible task of coming after The Dark Knight. Mm-hmm. Like we said, that trilogy peaked in the second film, which in some ways is great, but in some ways is not great because then the third film feels like a disappointment. And I think in a lot of ways, the reception of this film is largely because of that disappointment. People are just like, it's it's not as good and it's never going to be better. It's never going to be nearly as good. And I mean, that is not just because of the Heath Ledger of it all, but just because like that, I said, that film has a epic finality to it that it almost feels ridiculous to follow it up with something. Mm-hmm. This is number nine for me. I don't remember. Where did you say it was? Eight. Okay. So about the same. Um, It doesn't do anything horribly wrong. This is a a byproduct of it, just other films being better, in my opinion. I like that it picks up on the League of Shadows story. I think that's interesting of a underground global network of ninjas that are trying to continue on humanity by raising cities to the ground that are uh, the seeds of corruption or, or whatever. So so I think that's interesting. Um, I like that it tries to address the Harvey Dent thing. I think all the new characters are good. Uh, I really like Joseph Gordon-Levitt in this film. I feel like he's fallen off recently and is pretty <laughs> unmemorable in the things that he is in. Yeah. But I think he's fantastic in this movie. And it's almost a little weird to say that about a virtually unknown character i mean eventually we find out that yes he's robin but he's not any robin that we really know right he you know so 
I, I think he's great in here. I think Tom Hardy is really good. He's not going to be Heath Ledger, but he's not trying to be. The Bane voice is absurd, yeah. but he's a solid, you know, whatever. And I think each of the individual moments in this film are really good. The the plane heist, um, I haven't said this yet, but I have like the, the 4K box set of this trilogy that we've been watching um, on Blu-ray. And it's so cool to see the screen just pop up into that IMAX format and just watching him do that whole plane heist is fantastic. And then, you know, there's other great moments in this film, like the bombing of Gotham stadium and the first time that Bruce uses the bat wing. But I think overall the story is a little uninteresting and contrived in terms of the actual plot components. Um, Like it's really just, I want to create chaos and then I'm also going to blow them up. Because I'm a villain, you know? Yeah. So um, I, I I do think that there's things that work really well about this film, but it just doesn't quite feel as profound as some of other Nolan's films. Yeah. Yeah. No, I think that all of that's fair. Um, I agree, you know, that it's, it's a little um, loose in some things that maybe could have been, this movie could have maybe been a bit shorter than it was. Um, it's pretty it's long. It's really long, yeah. Um, and I think by the end, I was a little bit like, kind of like, okay, um, and, but I mean, it's, it's good. Like it's still an enjoyable watch except for something that I really hate about this movie and really made me want to look away is when Bruce sends Alfred away, I hate watching <laughs> old people be sad and I love Michael Caine and it's just like, you know, that Alfred loves him so much and, you know, just wants the best for Bruce. So it's just so sad when, when Bruce is mad at him, and so that's really sad for me, but, you know, I, I guess I can't really complain about that having a place in the story. <laughs> I, I think the other weak point about this film, again, is the relationships. Like, there's this Miranda Tate character, and I think we're supposed to feel like Batman or Bruce Wayne really cares about the Miranda Tate character, but I don't really understand why. There's also the leftover baggage of the Rachel relationship that is kind of, I think, supposed to be the reason why Bruce Wayne has just sort of given up on things. Yeah. And I just I just don't buy it. Like I just I it doesn't work for me. And I mean I, I do understand Batman's relationship with uh the Catwoman character. That has always made sense for me in like even just in a, a pretty basic way. Like they're similar characters. They have similar personalities, so we put them together. It makes sense that they're sort of foils of good versus evil of the same coin, whatever. But I just, I just, I just really don't care about the Talia Al Ghul character in terms of her relationship with Batman. So like the betrayal is a yeah. little like, all right, whatever. And, and again, I think this comes down to the the lack of emotional complexity with relationships in Nolan films. Yeah, I mean, this is sort of a, a just a subjective experience. But I will say, um, when we rewatched it the other day, it was it was only my second time watching it, um, and the first time was was years ago, and I actually forgot. Um, about that twist. Um, <laughs> so when we saw the the child, you know, in the prison in, in the flashbacks that we are led to believe is Bane, I was like, wait, why is this person being played by Joey King, who is famously a woman? Um, and then Mati kept being like, just just keep watching. It's explained. And I was like, wait, what? And then when it happened, I was like, oh, yeah. And then I ultimately did remember. But that's just to say how much of an impact that that character had on me was was relatively low. And yeah, as you've acknowledged, I don't think Nolan writes women very well. And I I am normally, as you can attest, pretty um, 
you know, I, I'm open to complaining about when a movie <laughs> doesn't represent women well. So I'm not like an easy to win over apologist for when movies don't do that well. So it is a little bit uncharacteristic of me that I'm so forgiving of Christopher Nolan in this respect. But I, I do just really like the movies. Um, So, you know, I'm not saying that like, that's good or that's okay. But um, but I, I do still like the movies. I, I wish that I wish that he did write women better. I wish that there were more female characters who weren't just there to be love interests and who weren't just there to be dead people who were motivating someone. Um, but but you know I I can't change him. So <laughs> he is um, huge wife guy apparently Chris Nolan because his wife Emma Thomas. Um, they've been together since they were like 19 and she produces like all of his movies. Um, so good for her. Um, for I think she kind of just sits there after watching all the movies be like something, something doesn't feel quite right here. <laughs> like, like, does, yeah, I do would be a little discuss that. Oh, I would like, can you imagine how annoying I would be if you were writing movies and in every movie you killed off the wife. Well, I think that would be a fair criticism. Yeah, no, I, I agree, which is why I would do it. But I, I just know that I would not be be very willing to let that go. Especially, again, he's writing these most of these stories. But you'd finance my movies, right? You would produce them? If you were going to kill me off? No. So she does. So <laughs> Okay, well, maybe she's a more dedicated wife than I. I mean, we can't know what's going on in their marriage. Um, so I, I would never speak ill of her, largely because I know almost nothing about her. Um, but but you know, good for her for for getting in on these movies and, and making them um and bringing them to fruition. And, and you know, hopefully, you know, we don't know how much input she's having, especially if he's writing them. You know, she she probably is. You know having some at least subconscious influence on the story. She's incepting. Yeah, she's incepting yeah. him. Mm -hmm. All right, so that that ends the Dark Knight trilogy and the Dark Knight era. He's moving on from the superhero genre to bigger and better things. And we start with Interstellar from 2014. So this is my number 10. Um, Ouch. Yeah, it's low. Um, I think Interstellar is perhaps the biggest personal casualty of the Christopher Nolan is a genius group think for me. Mm -hmm. When I saw this movie in 2014, I borderline hated the film. I was absolutely stunned that people were blown away by it. I was baffled by how many people thought that it was the greatest or one of the greatest films of the year. And as we talked about before, my defensive and sort of combative side came out and I was like, well, these people got it wrong. I'm going to double down on my slight problems with these movies and it's going to make me hate it. And I think ultimately a lot of that came from the fact that I thought this movie is kind of dumb. But then we watched it again. This was the second time that I had ever seen it. We watched it again last week. And upon rewatch, I realized that most of my issues with the film are in the last 30 minutes of the film. And that's not that much for a film that is two hours <laughs> and 47 minutes. Um, and I think overwhelmingly, my reception to the film was overshadowed by those 30 minutes and it completely shrouded my thoughts on the other two hours and 15 minutes, which I think are actually very, very excellent. On second watch, the ending is still really dumb, in my opinion, and I think the ending also kind of actively ruins the rest of the movie, but I did have a much better appreciation for the rest of the film. It's gorgeous. It does really good, efficient world building in the beginning. Um, I think Matthew McConaughey completely carries this film. 
Um, the scene where he's reacting to the 20 plus years of video footage that he gets from Casey Affleck and Jessica Chastain. I think that scene is heartbreaking, easily the most emotional thing in any mm-hmm. Christopher Nolan film. But I ultimately think that that is where the film peaks. It's the height of the emotional consequences of the character's actions. I don't think the rest of the film does a good job at capitalizing on the emotional relationships and themes of the story that that moment does. And I think that's where the film ultimately falls apart for me. Despite that, though, I think 10, yes, it's low. But again, this is referencing to what we said at the beginning of the episode. I would say that I softly like this movie. It, it's mm-hmm. it's not my favorite, obviously. And I do think it does a lot of things wrong, but I still think it is quite a good movie. Yeah, so I, I knew that you had that opinion of it going in, and I had actually never seen this movie. Um, and based on yours and a lot of my friends and trusted acquaintances' reception to the movie, I was worried that I wasn't going to like it, um, which is especially worrisome when a movie is two hours and 47 minutes, because no one <laughs> wants to know that they're not going to enjoy themselves for two hours and 47 minutes. But I actually loved this movie, um, and I'm almost embarrassed to say that this is my number four. Oh, I put it at three for you. Yeah. Well, yeah, because, I mean, we we do, you know, we don't tell each other our rankings beforehand, but I knew that you would you would know that I really liked it because I was pretty vocal about it. Like, as it was going on, like, after the first hour, I was kind of, like, like shyly, like, wait, like, I think this is really good. Well, so we should be clear that there are a lot of people that also really yeah, think it's yeah. good. It's oh, not no, an absolutely. uncommon opinion. And, yeah, and I think that, and I'm I'm being a little kind of, annoying because I because I do think popular conception was that this movie is really good and I think a lot of the people who don't like it are like a little bit more of like a I don't want to say pretentious but like kind of like people who are really critical like in a literal sense like you know are the people who don't like it do you think that's yeah I don't know I I think I've seen both that some people who film critics some film critics really love it and other film critics are like, this is really dumb. I think it's a very polarizing movie. And it's honestly like a case-by-case basis, it seems like. Yeah. Well, like Inception, this is another movie that's just absolutely huge. And there's just so much that I think is visually stunning about it, especially some of the scenes that take place on other planets. Oh, how the tables have turned. You think a movie looks beautiful. I mean, I am not above thinking a movie is beautiful, um, <laughs> especially, again, those those scenes like the when they're on the planet that has those towering waves um, or where they're on that that famous um, ice scape when the the Matthews are fighting each other. I also think that the score of this movie, while comically Hans Zimmery of Hans Zimmer, I thought was just so good, especially because there's a lot of scenes that would otherwise be kind of silent when they're in space, like that that famous scene when Cooper and Brand are trying to dock on the landing hub and the music. I mean, yeah, part of it is just an insane crescendo to be like, this is very serious. Um, but <laughs> I th- I was just like, ah, like it just makes it so tense. Um, and I, I did just love it. I've also I've never seen a movie play with time in the way that this movie does, um, where it's it's not time travel or, you know, anything wacky. It just is, you know, well, I mean, what he time travels at the end, essentially. OK, yeah, yeah. At the very end. But I'm thinking more I'm I'm thinking more about like the scene that you're talking about when he goes out onto another planet for a few hours right, and he comes right. back onto a ship and what, like 27 years have passed and he then, you know, he comes back and fr- onto a ship and his kids have grown up and he's watching those videos. And similar to you, I I felt I thought that that scene was so moving to watch him mm-hmm. watch these messages from his kids. 
especially with the understanding that, you know, he loves his kids or at least loves one of his kids. And, (laughs) you know, it was really hard for him to make this choice, I think, to leave. And I think that one of the reasons this hits so hard, maybe, is that we are currently in a situation where we do really need to be worried about our planet and what's going to happen to it. And so this, I think there's almost just like this like creeping reality of like, oh, like there, it's like very possible that, you know, like within our lifetimes, like people are going to have to make choices like this to, you know, to leave or at least, you know, our children's lifetimes or, you know, people Mm -hmm. are going to have to like probably leave earth, which is crazy to say now, but we're really low on okra, Dana. (laughs) Yeah. um, We need those crops back, but, (laughs) but no, I mean, and I think it's really hard to think about this, you know, from from Murph's perspective as when she's a kid at the beginning of this movie and she's so upset at her father for leaving. And I understand that. And I would be upset if my dad was like, yeah, I have to go do this. And and you understand why, because their planet needs it. And I mean, their planet is our planet. And, you know, we're probably not far from from where they are. And that that is just a, a fact at this point. Um, And that's really scary to think about. And I agree that I think that this is some of Nolan's best work with regard to just portraying relationships in a way that makes them feel lived in and really does tug at our emotions. Um, you know, some of the other relationships are a little bit less realized, like, you know, just even though it's it's not like a, a romantic relationship, but just like even like between Cooper and Brand, like I'm kind of like don't really there's not much chemistry there, I don't think, just, mm-hmm. you know, as actors or anything. But all of this being said, I think that I agree that and I, I think a lot of the problems that people have with this movie are, as you mentioned, sort of with the ending, with the sort of explanation of sort of what's been going on with regard to the sort of five dimensional um, gravity control thing that um, Matthew McConaughey is is manipulating at the end to sort of instruct his past self what they need to do to save the world. And I agree that it's a little hokey and it doesn't really make a ton of sense. I just love the first two hours and 15 minutes of this movie so much that that demerit to me doesn't bring it out of being a really top movie. Um, I think it's a really unique story idea. Um, I think it's really ambitious. And I agree that I can see, because even though I didn't see this movie in theaters at the time, which is kind of weird that I didn't, but in college I didn't go to the movies all that much. I think that it makes sense to me that it would suffer for for you and for other people because it was so anticipated. Because I remember there mm-hmm. being a lot of hype about it. And again, because it is such a big movie, that it not having a satisfying ending um, makes you walk out of the theater a little bit let down. So maybe if I had gone in with those really high expectations, I would have felt differently. But because I sort of had the almost opposite experience of going in being like, oh, I might not really like this, that I was I was actually pretty blown away. I think that's all perfectly fair. I guess my the biggest frustration I have with the ending is that like all the reasons that you said that you liked the first two hours and 15 minutes of this movie... I agree with. And the ending does nothing to further that. Mm-hmm. In fact, you cut out the ending and you get everything that you're talking about. Mm-hmm. You still have them going down to that planet and 27 years goes by. You mm-hmm. still have him coping with the idea of having to leave his family. 
you can even to some extent figure out some way to make love quantifiable, at least in some abstract way. I actually don't think like it's really dumb to make love quantifiable. Yeah, I, I, I never really latched on to what they were talking about there and kind of just yeah, let it go. So like everything in that last 30 minutes is like, why are we doing this? You're not saying anything interesting. In fact, it feels like the only reason you're doing this is because you were like, well, I talked to Neil deGrasse Tyson and a bunch of other assholes who said that this is probably what happens when you go into a black hole. And it's like, okay, fine, but it's dumb. It feels cheap to set up like this fairly predictable time travel thing that he's in the bookshelf or he's his daughter's ghost and blah, 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 and have it not really relate to any of the parts that I find most compelling about the film. You can still send him off into space. You can still have the amazing cinematography, the amazing score, and figure out a way for him to find a planet or whatever that they need to go to. And then he comes back home and he still has that reunion with Murph and blah, blah, blah. Maybe he gets lost in the black hole on the way back. And so even longer time has happened. So you do have him meeting with 95 year old Murph for like three minutes and then he leaves. Yeah. Like, so all the good parts of the film can work without him being in a fucking bookshelf, <laughs> writing Morse code yeah. data from a robot onto a fucking what? Like, I feel like I could make a whole podcast just like complaining about the ending. And I don't want to yeah. do that because it's, it's ultimately not very good criticism. But I just think that it does actively detract away from the film. And I agree that, like, this is a fantastic film when it's firing on all cylinders for me. Mm -hmm. Yeah, I mean, I think that that's, that's very true, that a lot of that stuff that happens at the end we just don't need. Um, it's almost like Nolan was like, I need to have a twist because I can't just make an emotional space movie, which is like what yeah. the best part of well, this was. So, and I think that there is a little bit of a twist already when you learn that Michael Caine knew that they mm -hmm. weren't going to be able to get back. And I think that, and, and I'm going to agree with you here in that, I think that another bad thing about the ending, I think it invalidates the impact of what could have been a huge sacrifice that the astronauts on this mission were making for all mankind, but then it is complicated by the idea that they didn't know they were making the sacrifice. Like they were, they were going in prepared with the knowledge. I feel like that it might not work, but they they felt deceived upon learning that the person who had come up with their mission didn't even believe that there was a chance for them to get back. So I do think that, you know, you would need to tweak some things to to make there be an alternate ending. Like, And I'm not saying that you were saying, you know, just chop it at two hours and 15 and call it a day. Like, you would have to <laughs> yeah. change some things. But I, I was surprised that he is able to reunite with Murph. I didn't think the movie was going in that direction. I did think that e even if they had the part where he sort of was able to communicate with her... I didn't think that he was ever going to see her again. And I actually didn't love that because I, I mean, even though, you know, I was, I, for most of the movie, I feel like actually, or for the first half of the movie, I was really hoping that he would be able to get back. But once it was sort of made clear to us that that wasn't going to be possible, I kind of just went through all five stages of grief about it and was kind of like, okay, he can't get back, but he's making this sacrifice for the world. And again, I think that Christopher Nolan is doing that thing where he is playing with, you know, 
with truths and the extent to which knowing the truth is helpful versus harmful mm-hmm. um, in order to to be able to go on. And Michael Caine's character, Professor Brand, who sort of thought captained this mission, basically concealed the truth because he was afraid that if he told them that there was no way they were going to get back, that they wouldn't be able to get back. But he's not meant to be an evil character. He is meant to be someone who who understood that if he didn't do this mission, that mankind would not be able to go on. And so from, you know, many different ideologies perspectives, what he's doing is noble, but at a very human level, it's very upsetting to know that someone that you trusted deceived you in that way and in doing so may cause you to sort of unknowingly lie to your children. So, so it's pretty complicated. And I don't know, what do you, what do you think of that, that lie that Brand tells? Do you think that's at all justified? I mean, I feel like it's one of those things where you watch a movie and you're like, yes, it makes sense that a character would do that. And absolutely, I don't begrudge the character for doing that because he sees it in himself that this is the way that, you know, to save humanity. But I would never do that. I I would never be able to bear that burden. Mm -hmm. And nor do I like, nor would I necessarily encourage somebody to do it, which I think is something that's often lost in film, right? Like you, it's very easy to look at something objectively and not think about the emotional aspect. And I think to its credit, this movie does do a fairly good job at doing that. If you aren't thinking about the emotional implications of a father leaving for an entire lifetime of a daughter growing up, then you look at Murph and you're like, Murph, chill. He's saving the world. You're being a brat. But of course, that's not how anybody would react in yeah. that situation. And of course, there's sympathy there that, yes, I, I understand how awful it would be to grow up without a dad, especially in the Dust Bowl or whatever this yeah. is. So, um, yeah, I mean, I, I think it is a very interesting exploration. And again, all of that is done in the first two hours and 15 minutes. Yeah, no, that's true. And I think that the inclusion of the Matt Damon character sort of fleshes that out a little bit, this idea that we might know that our sacrifice is important and necessary, but at the same time, just feel like I, I just can't do this. Like, and I, and, you know, as you noted, like his character being, uh, named man, like that is literally his character's last name. (laughs) And he just ultimately makes this what's positioned to us as someone who's been with the main characters the whole time as the selfish decision to be like, I, you know, he, he's been there for what, 27 years or something. Um, and he sent out, you know, a blip so that someone would come, um, someone would come find him and he wanted to be able to come home. And again, it's, it's really, I think, thought provoking when we consider, you know, what's going to happen for the future of, you know, humankind over the next few generations of the reality that people might have to make, you know, really, really hard decisions about, the choices that they make for their families and where they're going to live and how they're going to live. Um, and I think, again, that's why, to me, I think this movie is really impactful. Yeah, perfectly fair. Um, I agree with a lot of what you're saying. And I think for the sake of this podcast, I'm going to cut it there. We'll go ahead and move on because we've got two more films to talk about. But I think offline, we'll definitely have a much longer conversation about this. And maybe if listeners want to want us to do a longer interstellar podcast, I'm willing to rewatch that movie again for that. So uh, let me know. 
at moviemarathonerspod at gmail.com. Okay, so um, we are moving on to 2017. He's slowed his roll down a little bit. Now it's three years between films going forward. We've got Dunkirk, 2017. Tanks have stopped. Why? Why waste precious tanks when they can pick us off from the air like fish in a barrel? There are 400,000 men on this beach. Dana, thoughts on Dunkirk? This was the last movie we watched for our little Nolan Fest uh, just yesterday. And I had been vaguely interested in seeing it in theaters when it came out, (laughs) but I didn't get around to it. And it's not the kind of movie that I would just turn on without a nudge from someone else. And you had already seen this movie, so that just hadn't been in the cards until we sort of had to watch it. Um, So I came in with medium expectations. I'm not a huge war movie person. But if I'm going to watch a war movie, I would probably pick for it to be about World War II, just because that's just like historically where my interests lie, I guess. Um, But this movie doesn't really delve into like it being World War II too much besides like the geography of it and the countries Mm -hmm. involved. Um, This did come in at number 10 for me. Um, So not not super high up. Again, I, I think that like, that doesn't mean it's bad, of course. Um, it's a departure from other Nolan films in just how kind of literal it is, which makes sense given the subject matter. I didn't really expect anything different, but it's just sort of a shift from his usual trademarks. He still does use some of that nonlinear storytelling, which actually was a little bit rocky for me here, just because when everyone's sort of out on a boat and there are no recognizable landmarks or changes to help you track when you are, things get confusing pretty quickly. Um, And that might have been intentional to show just like how disorienting world fighting in a war can be. Um, But I don't know. I was a little confused for a lot of this movie. With that being said, I think that this film does a good job depicting war for closer to what it is than a lot of other war movies um, in that not everyone is, you know, is a hero here. Almost no one really like in in the military here is portrayed as, you know, being a, a big day saving hero with really noble ambitions um they're just trying to survive and they're mm-hmm. most of them are really young men and they're they're grappling with these moments where they are having these realizations like oh no one is coming to save us um and you know this war has been entered into with the understanding that many of us will die and i think you know for i mean i can't really occupy the mindset of being you know a 18 year old boy going to fight in world war ii but i'm guessing a lot of them you know weren't able to have that reflection when they were leaving to go the extent that you know when when a country enters a war that it is done with the understanding that some some people are going to die like and that's just the way it is and of course eventually in this movie some people do come to save people but it's largely just brave civilians like mark rylance and his little recreational boat and it's not some you know mighty arm of the government it's just people and there's this message of like we are all that we have, which is kind of nice. Um, mm-hmm. You know, the, it does end like relatively happily. Um, and so I don't have any huge qualms with this movie, but it's just not super my jam. I think if I watched any individual scene or even any set piece from this movie without having seen the rest of the film, 
I would be really tantalized by the craft, the cinematography, the set design. One could say this movie is gorgeous. Yes, one could, and they would be correct. Uh, the intensity of it, and a little bit what you're saying, the the sheer dedication to the realistic portrayal of the events. And from that scene, I'd assume, okay, the scene's place in the film will be contextualized by the rest of the film. <laughs> and it will help me explain why I care about the characters and the emotional significance of that scene. But this film has virtually zero interest in character development for any of its characters. And that's obviously very intentional, right? There is no Saving Private Ryan moment where you find out who Tom Hanks was before the war, because that doesn't actually happen. And I'm, I'm assuming, I mean, I've never been to war, but I'm pretty sure you don't sit there and be like, I was a teacher. All these characters, they're blank slates, and most of them don't even have identifiable names. Like, I would not have been able to name any of these characters if it wasn't for the subtitles. Harry Styles. Yeah. <laughs> and... Again, that's meant to represent that these are just a handful of randomly picked guys from the 400,000 men that are on Dunkirk. And I think that is a great realistic representation uh, of the war. I think it's a great statement about war, as you're saying. But I do really think that it really hurts the film to the point that as a movie, as a cohesive story that is told in the media of moving pictures... I think it's a borderline bad movie. Mm -hmm. I don't think it's bad individual scenes. I think some of these individual scenes are incredible. Like some of the best I've ever seen in terms of tension, in terms of how it's shot, everything. But as a story where I go to a movie to be like, tell me a story about these characters. I think this movie does a really poor job at that. So it is number 11 for me, the mm -hmm. bottom of the barrel. Um, I will say that I thought this was unwatchable when I saw it for the first time in theaters. This is going to be a theme of this podcast that maybe I should watch movies twice because I really did enjoy watching it again yesterday when we watched it. So as I Christopher have, Nolan intended it to be seen yeah. <laughs> on my small TV. Yeah, but I mean, so so I do really like parts of this movie, but I still think that my first impression of the film was that it's just there's nothing to latch onto in terms of characters. And in fact, because of that nonlinearity that you're talking about, it's almost too incoherent, especially when you've got 15 characters that you're following that are all played by white, black haired British guys, yeah, most of which are not Harry Styles. So you can't identify them. <laughs> it's like this is almost bordering on intentionally obscure and again, I agree that it's probably intentional. Like you're saying, war is a haze, but it's like I'm watching a fucking movie. I'm not in war. So like you need to give me something to latch on to. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's almost like, well, like realism for like realism's sake doesn't make for yeah. a good movie. And it's interesting that you that you say this and you feel this strongly about this because I had sort of adjusted for when I watch any movie that is just all white brown haired men which is a lot of movies i do struggle to you know be like who is who well yeah why should i care but i'm so used to have to watch having to watch movies that are that and then being told by other people that they're good that i'm like oh well that's just not like for <laughs> me so it's interesting to hear like you, that you think that the, about this movie because it's like okay well maybe this is a more egregious case of this because i was like okay this isn't really speaking to me this isn't really read and you know that's not necessarily a bad thing you know um, um, not every movie is designed to speak to me and that's okay 
But but yeah, I I also did struggle with okay, like who is he? Who is he? Why do I care? Um, and I do think that that the most interesting, if only just because we actually get to know them a little bit more, the is the characters on the Mark Rylance boat. Yeah. And it's almost like that's why they were included is to kind of give us, you know, something emotionally. Um, and it's actually really sad um, that what happens on that boat where Killian Murphy like sort of accidentally kills that boy, George, by just kind of like pushing him down the companionway of the boat. And we understand that Killian Murphy's character um, is suffering from PTSD and he's probably just had a really horrible experience. And I think that it's really interesting the the moment where Killian Murphy, I don't remember the character's name, um, which is why I keep calling him yeah. <laughs> Killian Murphy, um, realizes sort of, you know, that he's done something really bad and he immediately kind of recoils and he spends like the rest of the movie just kind of like cowering in a corner because he feels so bad about what he's done. And then the other boy, I don't remember his name. George? I thought George was the boy who died. Okay. Um, um, yeah, George I'm too. Gonna, um, I'm not going to bet on uh, any of Killian that. Killian Murphy asks, is he going to be okay? And the first time he asked that, the boy's kind of like, no, it's really bad and he's really angry. Um, but then later when Killian Murphy says, is he going to be okay? The boy kind of pauses and then he says yes. And I'm wondering what you think of that choice because I think that Obviously, it's horrible that he killed him. He certainly didn't mean to, but that's not enough. It's not enough to, you know, you know, hurt someone and then be like, I didn't mean to kill them. But but I'm wondering what you think, because I thought that that was a really interesting moment. Yeah, well, I mean, I think that's one of the places where Dunkirk, despite being completely devoid of character motivation, is that there is a lot of profound things that it's trying to say about the nature of war and everything like that. And I think that moment is really good. I did not remember it when we were watching it the second time, but when it hit, I was like, damn, like not only is that a good thing for that character to do, but also to just introduce what I think it's trying to say is that that in that moment, the character acknowledges that this guy has been through absolute hell. And so there's no, you know, he yes, he physically accidentally pushed the, the Barakio character down, but he died from the war, from the war yeah. effort. the The Battle of Dunkirk killed Barakio, and not yeah. Killian it's almost Murphy. that insomnia mentality where, um, after you know Will Dormer kills his partner, like there's this idea of like, well, if Walter Finch hadn't killed that other girl, right. they wouldn't even have been out there. So is is it really the person who pulled the trigger's fault or is it the person who put them in that situation's fault? Right. And I think in Insomnia, it's uh, that's a little bit of a stretch. Yeah, yeah, but yeah. I think in this moment with World War II, with war being something that like we just we don't have any concept of that being born in the 90s and living in America. Like we don't have a concept of a world war where there is a fear of being invaded mm -hmm. by Germans living, you know, so like, I, I I think it's a really interesting moment, because in that moment, the, the kid is like, look, I know that this guy has been through hell. I don't, there's no purpose in putting him through more hell. Mm -hmm. And it's, it's not like excusing him for the actions, because he knows that that guy's going to live with that for the rest of his life. Mm -hmm. But there's no point in piling on top of him. Like, we're all just trying to get by, which I think is a is a really beautiful part of this film and is mirrored in the optimistic parts of the ending, like you're saying. I think the ending is quite emotional, despite not caring about any of the characters. But as like a, a collective whole, it's like, yay, we did it. Mm -hmm. So I, I really like that moment. And I think it's I'm glad you pointed it out. Mm hmm. 
I want to say before we move on that after we watched this yesterday, I posted one of those red pill, blue pill tweets um, where I asked whether 1917 or Dunkirk was the better war film. And I got way more responses than I thought I would. I got 192 comments and 167 retweets the last time I checked. And so I went through all of those and added up the totals to see what this admittedly very small sample size of people thought was the better film. I think you and I both agree that 1917 is the better of the two. Yeah. yeah. Do you have any guesses for like what the breakdown is? I mean, I I saw some responses. I saw that they were quite split. Um, I was seeing about 50-50. I would be surprised if it's much different than if like a relatively 50-50-ish split. Yeah, it's, it's close. Uh, 117 people prefer Dunkirk. And 150 people preferred 1917. Mm-hmm. So Edge goes to 1917. Um, and as I said, we I do personally agree with that. But what I thought was really funny about seeing these things flood in was that so many people were tweeting 1917 and it's not even close. And then the exact same number of people were tweeting Dunkirk and it's not even close. And it turns out that it actually is pretty close. (laughs) I understand that what they're saying is that for them personally, it's not close, but it is funny that people just have such extremely different or such different opinions that are so extreme from one another. It's it's very, it's, it's interesting to see like how somebody could connect so much to this and not at all to the other one and vice versa. Yeah, no, that is, that is strange because I, I wonder like what what the majority of those people's opinion of war movies in general is because I think that like for me a lot of the reason why I think I like 1917 and I know that some people think the one shot thing is gimmicky but I liked that it was really easy for me to follow <laughs> and it was really easy to make me care about characters because I'm like okay I'm experiencing this with you so I yeah. do care about you and when um uh what's his face dies like you know 40 percent of the way through the movie like that really hits hard because you were like oh i thought we were gonna go through this whole thing together yeah he's like one of two characters that we know also spoilers for 1917 sorry um uh but i mean come on um i'm not i don't mean this in a mean way but i would just be surprised if listeners haven't seen 1917 but that's not a bad thing if you haven't seen it i'm sorry fair way to cover your bases yeah you won't get sued now yeah Um, for defamation There was also a lot of people who felt the need to voluntarily respond to my tweet, specifically people who don't follow me, by the way, and they felt the need to go in and respond neither or both (laughs) or why do we have to choose or um, actually you can't compare these things at all. And Lottie it's, actually broke into people's houses and put a gun to their head and you said you have to choose. Yeah, it's like it, they did this as if my tweet was forcing them to choose between these two movies and also that my tweet seemed to imply that you couldn't choose both, you know? So I I just want to use this as a moment to say, just as a word of advice for people, you can actually not comment on a tweet if you don't want to. So just keep that in mind. But but I appreciate all the comments. I, I, I thought it was a really fun way to engage with people and I was really excited to get to talk to so many other people. So like, I don't want to discourage people from responding to my things, but you really don't need to be like, oh, actually the best war movie is Saving Private Ryan because that's not what I was saying at all. Anyways, let's go ahead and move on to Nolan's last film. And given that theaters are dying, maybe his last film ever, this is Tenet from 2020. 
the film that killed movie theaters. Um, this is a film that was supposed to come out July 17th, 2020, but was slowly pushed back week after week due to COVID problems. And then finally, Nolan kind of forced Warner Brothers' hand and convinced them to release it into theaters on September 3rd, 2020. I specifically remember the weeks building up to this release that there were ads for the film on TV that were like, big movies are back in Boston, see Tenet in the theaters. And we did not see Tenet in Boston. Instead, we drove almost an hour to Rhode Island to get to a drive-in so that we could watch Tenet from the comfort and safety of your nice little Subaru Forester. And uh, Dana, how, how'd that go? Okay, I would like to get out in front of the rumors that are about to be spread about me, which is that I fell asleep during Christopher Nolan's Tenet. And, you know, uh, maybe I did. <laughs> and <laughs> I, in my defense, um, I work in elementary school and I wake up very early for work. And this was on a Friday. And so it was Friday night and we had just driven. And I, I, Mati knows that I fall asleep sometimes when it gets late and we're watching a movie. So, you know, it's nothing that surprising. But also, literally the moment that I was about to put my phone in Do Not Disturb and not look at it for three hours, literally the moment I had gone, I'd op- I had unlocked my phone to click Do Not Disturb, I checked my phone and I had a bunch of notifications. And it was um, all of those I know and love texting me that Ruth Bader Ginsburg had just died. And then I was like spiraled into despair because this was also before the election. So we didn't know, you know, how everything was going to shake out with that. And everything seemed so dark. And I was just having a really hard time focusing on the movie. Um, And then ultimately about halfway through, I did succumb to my whatever you want to call it. And I did fall asleep. So So I don't know how the movie ends. (laughs) So this ultimately explains why insomnia was your number 11. You just couldn't relate. To the idea of not sleeping. No, I'm, yeah, I'm a pretty regular, pretty regular sleeper. Yeah, yeah. So, I mean, I, <laughs> this was, this was quite the uh, fiasco <laughs> that we drove all the way out there and, and Dana fell asleep. But I, I don't think, you know, I think retrospectively, I, my ambitions got the better of me. I think it would have been smart to wait until Saturday and go Saturday evening when we could have pumped you up with coffee for the entire day and known that you would have been awake. So I apologize for that. But in terms of the first half of Tenet, (laughs) I did elaborately try attempt at least to explain the second half of the film to you. I don't know how successful I was at that, but I'm, I don't think that you falling asleep was a reflection of the quality of this film. Correct. Um, no, but I also wasn't loving it. I wasn't loving what I was seeing. Okay. Um, I, Tried to get away with not ranking this movie because I said I didn't think it was fair. But um, but for artistic commitment to the process, I've given it a <laughs> ranking of nine um, based on how it seemed like it was going. Um, I, I thought that I would enjoy it more. Wait, did you fall asleep for the last 30 minutes of Interstellar? Is that why it's so <laughs> no, hot? No, no, no. I was awake <laughs> for all of the rest of these movies, I promise. Um I don't know. You were struggling at the end of Dark Knight Rises. Okay, I remember a that. very long movie. Um, and I, I have seen that before. Yeah, um, yeah, I'm just being an ass. But yeah. Um, so I, I, I don't want to. And we said that we wouldn't spoil this movie, so I don't know how specific we want to get. <laughs> you couldn't not, if you. <laughs> no, if you I know, to. <laughs> I know. But I mean, there are there are things that happen in the first half that could definitely be considered as spoilers. Yeah, yeah. Um, but I, I think that. 
this movie wasn't resonating with me if and it might have been a little bit of just kind of like a little bit of Nolan fatigue maybe of it was almost like comically like like Nolan to a point of parody of just the whole setup of the premise which is sort of like how matter can move backwards and it's just set up in a very kind of like inception-y way and I just didn't I was kind of just like you and again maybe this was um, this is through the lens of processing Ruth Bader Ginsburg's death but I just was like I don't care that much about this um I think the performances were fine I think you know I think that John David Washington is good um I love Kenneth Branagh I think that it it felt very um impersonal to me. It felt very cold. I felt like even more than usual, I was just really struggling to find emotional stakes in the movie. And I just, um, again, maybe again, it's suffering from those those high ambitions and that hype, especially when this was getting moved back, like literally week to week. Um, and it was like, the next big film is coming. And then I did see some positive reviews um going into it and then when i saw it i was kind of like oh man um but yeah that's my that's my hot takes yeah i mean i i think that the film is just a little too aggressively complicated Mm -hmm. and it's very clear that nolan structured the film in a way that you have to watch it at least twice Mm -hmm. um yeah definitely this is a cinematic experience i think it would have been fun to see this twice in cinemas um and analyze it the second time knowing what was happening and everything like that there's a lot of things that once you know what's going on i'm sure there are things at the beginning of the movie that lay that out and things like that so in that sense i did enjoy it It, it's kind of a puzzle box of a film like a lot of nolan's films are but as i mentioned in the inception review that we just did i i think that the reason that this one struggles so much is that There isn't too much to hold on to unless you do understand what's going on. And the film aggressively says, I'm not going to help you figure it out. You Mm -hmm. need to figure it out yourself. You need to read the Reddit theories. You need Mm -hmm. to write the Reddit theories, you know, whatever. And I think that there's a group of people who saw the film and understood it very well or thought they understood it very well and were painting the lack of understanding of the film on the audience and I think those people are douchebags like a film can be complicated and you can expect some level of competence in your audience um, but there is also a point that is too far and I think this movie does take it just a little too far Mm -hmm. but that being said I am really excited to watch this again and I think we will definitely rent this when it comes out next week and I'm really excited to get to see it with subtitles and fully understand what's going on. Because as you're saying, the the set pieces, they're cool. It, it is quite actiony. It's very sci-fi James Bondy. Um, the acting is good. I think the relationship between the Robert Pattinson and the the John David Washington character is really good. They have they have a fun relationship. I think Elizabeth DeBecky has a really simple motivation, but at least she has a motivation that isn't about a dead husband or wife, you know? So I, I like aspects of this film. I had a lot of fun with it and I'm excited to see it again. I don't know if I mentioned this is sitting at number seven for me. Mm-hmm. So with that, we've finished our ranking of all 11 of Christopher Nolan's films. Let's go ahead and restate our rankings here. Dana, from worst to best, what is your definitive ranking of Christopher Nolan's films? Okay, so we got from worst to best, Insomnia, Dunkirk, Tenet, The Dark Knight Rises, Following, Inception, Batman Begins, Interstellar, Dark Knight, 
Memento, and Prestige. I also just realized while saying this that with the exception of the Batman movies, all of his film titles are one word. Oh, that's cool, I guess. (laughs) So can you say your top three again? Because my guesses for your top three were The Prestige is number one, Inception as number two, and Interstellar as number three. Yeah, so you only got one. I had Prestige at one, Memento at two, and Dark Knight at three. Damn, I I really didn't think that you liked Memento as much as you did just because we didn't talk about it much right afterwards, but it was because of this podcast, so I played myself. All right, my rankings are number 11, Dunkirk, and then Interstellar, The Dark Knight Rises, Insomnia, Following, Tenet, Batman Begins, The Prestige, and then my top three are The Dark Knight, Inception, and Memento. Yeah, so I got your top three. I just flipped the order of two and three because I said Memento, The Dark Knight, Inception. Wow. Okay. So I think I win the podcast. Yeah. Congratulations. You win the podcast. That means that you get all the residual money that I'll get from those ads. You might get pennies. Amazing news. Congratulations. What are you going to do with that? Are you going to use it to buy the Tenet 4K release so that we can watch it again? Probably not. Um, I'm going to wait wait for you to do that. <laughs> All right. Well, that's the end of our ranking. Dana, thank you so much for joining me again. This was a long one. It was a lot of fun. We we did a good job, I think. Um, yeah. Thank you for having me. Yeah. It's always fun to have you. Is there anything specific that you want to plug here? Um, not not really. Um, happy holidays, everyone. Um, Hanukkah is ongoing. Christmas is coming. All the other holidays that happen around this time. Hope you have a good one. Awesome. The intro music for this episode is a piece called Work by Kevin McLeod, and you can find more of his work at incompetech.com. If you'd like to keep up with this podcast and find out when we release new episodes, you can follow us on Twitter at MovieMarapod or on Facebook at facebook.com slash MovieMarapod. That's Movie, M-A-R-A, pod. And you can always reach out to us at our email, MovieMarathonersPod at gmail.com. You can find more episodes of this podcast at our website, evergreenpodcasts.com slash movie-marathoners. And we are also on iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher Radio, Spotify, Overcast, Himalaya, and CastBox. So please subscribe or write a review if you like what we're doing. And any feedback you have to help improve the podcast is always appreciated. So thank you all for listening, and we hope you'll join us again next time when I'm joined by my friend Ian Anderson for a Christmas-themed episode. We'll be talking about fake Christmas movies, aka movies that technically take place during Christmas, but aren't actually about Christmas. So I think that's going to be a fun one, and stay tuned for that. Until then, remember that life's a marathon, so let's take it one movie at a time. Hello, and welcome to Novel Conversations, a podcast about the world's greatest stories. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. And for each episode of Novel Conversations, I talk to two readers about one book. And together, we summarize the story for you. We introduce you to the characters, we tell you what happens to them, and we read from the book along the way. So if you love hearing a good story, you're in the right place. Our ninth season is coming this fall. Tune in to hear from some of the all-time great authors, Charles Dickens, Jules Verne, F. Scott Fitzgerald, and more. Subscribe to Novel Conversations wherever you listen to podcasts.